Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Filmcast, a podcast about movies. I'm David Chen, and you sure have a lot of nerve coming in with a prequel like this on this, the day of my daughter's wedding. <laughs> Actually, maybe, maybe that's the wrong film. Joining yeah. me today is Devinder Hardwar. Just just call me the patron saint of calzones, because it can be just as good as pizza, okay? <laughs> oh, All hail calzones. Wow. And Jeff Kanata. I woke up this morning and got myself some fun. <laughs> Actually, you win. You win today. (laughs) Those are, of course, a reference to the fact that today on the podcast, we'll be reviewing The Many Saints of Newark, a Sopranos prequel film. We got Matt Zollersites, legendary critic, in my opinion, who's going to be joining us for that review. It's going to be a lot of fun. We also got some what we've been watching for you and some weekly plugs before that, plus a little dose of film news. You can find more episodes of this podcast at thefilmcast.com. Email us at slashfilmcast at gmail.com. Now, I do have one quick announcement. Uh, if you are a patron of ours at patreon.com slash film podcast, uh, we want to thank you for your support of the show. It's a way you can support the show if you want to uh, uh, give us a little uh, support and some money there. Uh, but one of the things that we were able to do recently is not not always a thing we can do, but Devendra, Jeff, and I happened to watch No Time to Die, the newest James Bond movie, <laughs> we, obscenely early. We kind of just early. stumbled into it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> obscenely early. We, we, we usually, like, if we're lucky, we can see a movie early, but we actually all got to see it ser- like a couple weeks early. And so as a treat for patrons at patreon.com slash film podcast, um, we're going to be publishing the review only, the review segment of that episode, next week's episode, uh, early on the Patreon page at patreon.com slash film podcast. So a little nice treat. Basically, if you are a patron there, you will get our review of No Time to Die. We already recorded it. It's it's uh, great. It's, it's a great, really it's a good a, one. It's really it's a good, good one. one. We, if we I do, got... you know, we don't usually praise... Uh, our ep- our own episodes. In fact, quite op- quite the opposite. Well, it has I'm- very little to do with us as to why it's great. Yes, yes, yes. But you know, <laughs> we, we never praise the show. Mo- most often, we think it's actually quite terrible, and you shouldn't listen to it. Yeah. But what are you the even times- doing? Th- that's why the times when we say it's good, you should believe us, right? Yeah. Um, and so our No Time to Die review, again, will be made available for patrons early. Patreon.com slash film podcast. I, I would venture to say this episode <laughs> and next week's episode the guests and kudos to you dave for lining mm-hmm. them up but the guests that we've brought in are veritable Super- experts yes. on the topics exactly right. and elevate the discourse <laughs> incredible i mean it's just it, 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 we just sit back and listen most most yes. of the show and yes. and that is to your benefit listener because 100%. uh you're gonna get a much better show than we would be able to do on our own well, thank you for acknowledging that, Jeff. And yes, it did take quite a bit of work to make this all work out. And I'm really glad it did because we have some awesome guests both today and next week. So check out those episodes. Uh, again, patreon.com slash film podcast. But anyway, let's move on to the rest of the show. One quick bit of film news, guys, that I just wanted to acknowledge before I get to what we've been watching this week. That is that Venom 2 debuted this week, a movie that none of us have seen, right? <laughs> We did yeah, talk about you it quite guys a bit. Talked in, me out of it. I we do did, know the spoilers. About, yeah. Oh, okay. Oh, They're okay. out there. Well, yeah. well, uh, we we have we did talk about Venom uh, on a recent After Dark, and we haven't seen it. Uh, we have gotten lots of tweets from people saying you must see it and talk about it. Yes. So I do think it will be a future topic of either what we've been watching or an After Dark. Is it, is it the entire movie, or are we just going to talk about the like? 10 seconds of spoilers like really i i, I don't know yeah, but i, I yeah. plan to watch the entire movie um but uh on, on that note uh i did want to note like uh, I, i've been doing these twitter spaces with scott mendelson on on sunday mornings every sunday morning we hop on the twitters 
and we talk about the box office for the weekend because Scott has an encyclopedic knowledge of box office. And he had predicted like on the low end, something like lowest possible 50 million, you know, 50 to 65 million uh, for Venom too, right? And probably closer to like 75 million uh, for an opening weekend for Venom too. Notably, Venom 1, when it opened at the box office, made $80 million in its first three days. Uh, do you know how much Venom 2 made in its first three days? I think Does I anyone... 95. Too, too much money. $90.1 million. Jeez. So people, it made... People just want to get 10, licked by these it Venom. Made 10, <laughs> <laughs> it made Damn, $10 million dollars yeah. more than Venom 1. Guess what? We're getting Venom 3, bro. <laughs> Venom 3 on its way. Yeah. I know. I, I Like... So all eyes on No Time to Die next week, right? In terms of yeah. box office, but I feel like uh, it would be, mm-hmm. the other thing that we've observed, right, as we've been talking about box office over the last couple months, um, is that there is a huge gulf between number one and number two at the box office every week. Right, it's right. very much becoming like the haves and the have-nots. Well, yeah, people just go to see one movie. Right, they go to see one movie and then that's it. And uh, number two this week was Adam's Family Two, which made mm-hmm. eighteen million dollars. So that was a seventy-two um, million dollar difference. And let's sure be clear: you're reading the people, box office people, for nineteen ninety-eight. Mm, <laughs> people are only going to see one movie for fear of death. That is still a thing <laughs> that happening. That is true. Yeah. But they really want to see that one movie, time. though. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. They want to see the one movie. They're not going to go see their second choice, basically. <laughs> yeah. Um, at the box office. But yeah, I think uh, I think that it's it's interesting because on the one hand, like tentpole movies now, I think definitively, between Shang-Chi making over $200 million domestic and now Venom 2 scoring $90 million opening weekend, mm-hmm. uh, tentpole, dom- like, tentpole blockbusters now have the potential to perform well sure. at the box office right now. We, I mean, um, we, we've but, been in such a pressure cooker for so long, too. I do feel like a lot of people are just like, I, I got to get out. I got to do this. So yeah. hopefully they're yeah. being safe and hopefully they're vaccinated. That's all I hope. Yeah. Agreed. It's, a lot of people taking revenge vacations, too. Like, you yeah. know, like I'm <laughs> I'm bitter that I haven't been able to take a vacation. So, like, mm-hmm. I'm taking a vacation because, God damn it, I deserve it, basically. <laughs> mm-hmm. Right. Um, so anyway, I, I think it's just it's, it's interesting to know. And we'll see how well No Time to Die does next week. I, I'm going to be very curious about that. That's a movie that could make a billion dollars, potentially, depending on how well it does. So um, the frustrating yeah. part to me is is that it means that we're going to get a litany of these <laughs> side Spider-Man character mm-hmm. movies mm-hmm. uh because i can't wait for is, the uncle ben origin story jeff uh, that's the one i'm looking forward to it is it is going to be a a cash cow that is going to be squeeze a money horse that will be squeezed <laughs> to its very last uh last it's going to be disgusting to see how they'll just every little thing that they that they yeah, have the rights yeah. to is going to be uh how leveraged. about this uh ben affleck as old daredevil, <laughs> old fun, daredevil. Right? <laughs> i love it Interesting. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I agree with you, Devendra. Be safe. Wear a mask. Uh, get vaccinated before you go out to the movie theater. It 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 does feel. I will say, guys, it does feel to me like possible to go to a movie theater relatively safely now. Like, yeah, if you're smart yeah. about it. If you're yeah. smart, you know, I'll go to like a screening that's like relatively sparsely attended. I'll wear an N95 mask the whole time. I feel like that's like to me that's feels safer than like dining indoors, for example. Oh god, um, yeah. never. But I, I do the thing during my no time to die screening where I this movie is three hours long. I'm not going to survive <laughs> this movie without coffee. So I was like, okay, okay, I'm just gonna I'm just gonna get a nice coffee and just like st- stick the straw on, under my mask and do something. That that's the most I will go right now. Uh, yeah, I, that, it's fair enough. Fair enough. No um, time to but, die was my first uh, my first Denver press screening. Nice. 
which was, uh, was quite the, a Let me experience. ask you this question. It took you long, Jeff. Come on. No. It took me a year. Was the right. vibe I, I, any I'm... different, do you feel like, than an L.A. screening? <laughs> D- different? Yeah. What was the vibe? What, what was, yeah. What was the vibe comparison? Much. I, I, I have no context, uh, COVID, you know, post-COVID, pre-COVID for Denver, obviously. Right, right. Uh, so I don't know if that's the factor, but it much more sparsely attended than a LA, typical L.A. screening uh, press-wise. Um could you I, smell I, the stench of desperation that you normally do at an LA press <laughs> Oh no, no, no! That's much, much different. It smells more like pine. <laughs> I'm just—I I love all my LA peeps. I'm just, yeah. uh, I, but it, you know, it's a. I went to. An, I've been to a couple LA press screenings, and they are like intense. It's you know crazy. I mean, oh, yeah. like, I mean listen, yeah. listen. New York is pretty desperate too. Like the big cities, like here. <laughs> uh, my one Atlanta screening was a lot of people saying. Um, Man, why doesn't everybody like give us screenings? Basically, it's a lot. It's complaining that nothing is here, <laughs> which is true. Nothing is here. All right. Well, be safe out there, and uh, no time to die next week. We got some really good movies to review for you this month, uh, and some great movies on video on demand next month to to talk about. So it's going to be a great couple months for yeah. uh, the, the movies uh, we're talking about. The card counter just hit VOD. So yeah, I saw that. Yeah. I saw that. Uh, but we got we got too much to cover already, Devinder. We got no time to die. We got Squid Game. We got to cover as well on After Dark next week. So uh, a lot of stuff to to do. Um, but let's get to what we've been watching this week. I'll talk about a couple of things I've been watching. Uh, the first thing is a movie called The Guilty. You guys heard of this movie? Apparently, it was mm-hmm. it was number two in the United States, uh, second only to Squid Game uh, on Netflix. <laughs> this is the Jake Gyllenhaal movie. This is the Jake Gyllenhaal movie. Uh, I'll read the plot summary from I'm, uh, from the internet. Uh, a troubled police detective demoted to 911 uh, operator uh, duty scrambles to save a distressed caller during a harrowing day of revelations and reckonings, end quote. It, it, this looks indistinguishable from the movie where he played the... Uh... The photographer, the like uh, crime Nightcrawler? scene photographer, yeah, yeah. Nightcrawler. Nightcrawl- yeah. I mean, he looked like uh, a monster in that movie. This one seems a little different. Yeah, I agree. He plays like basically an ex-cop or a cop potentially about to become an ex-cop who's been demoted to nine nine one one operator. And uh, I- I'm just gonna say, first of all, this movie is based off of a uh, foreign film, I a German it's movie, Norwegian. Yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. Um, but. I, I, my understanding is that movie is much better and it's also available on Hulu. And I would actually recommend you watch that one. If you're interested in this premise, uh, the guilty, the Netflix version d- directed by Antoine Fuqua is not good. In my opinion, it's, it's actually <laughs> pretty bad. Mo- most of the movie is Jake Gyllenhaal screaming into a headset. Basically. That's like I mean, most of the yeah. film. And if you're going to watch that, watch like- the, uh, watch the Fox show nine one one which is insane. <laughs> I've talked about this before, but it has several spinoffs now. Like it's getting wilder. Yeah. Is Rob Lowe in that? Is that yeah. the one with Rob Lowe? There, there is yeah. one where Rob Lowe goes over his real life facial skincare routine. It's uh, it's nine one one. Everybody. Uh, you mean the... all I have to do to get Rob Lowe skincare <laughs> advice is to call nine one one. Yes. Please don't <laughs> this do is an emergency. I have a breakout. <laughs> Uh, one of the things that I think really makes this movie and other movies tough to watch is we've at this point seen many single person in single location movies, right? Like it's, it's become a whole mm-hmm. genre. Uh, and here's what I don't understand is when people make these movies, why, when they star movies like Ryan Reynolds in Buried and, and Jake Gyllenhaal in this movie, they feel like the way to crack this formula is I need to make the protagonist into an asshole. 
Like that's <laughs> that's their solution is well, I need this guy to emote. It doesn't make sense if he has everything under control because that's not compelling watching someone be competent right. and do something well. Well, if they were not uh, so, an asshole, other people would be around them. Uh, I know? need to Q- make them an un- QED. <laughs> exactly. I need to make them an unstable asshole for this to work. Yeah. And well, you, they you, are you incredibly need a journey. Well. You need a journey from not liking them to kind of liking them too. It's an easy formula, right? Yeah. Um, I, and uh, unfortunately, I don't think this movie really pulls that off. Uh, mm-hmm. He is incredibly unlikable and unprofessional. And then the movie tries to bring you around to root for him. And uh, it doesn't work at all, in my opinion. Um, it ends up being like a fairly ridiculous film and uh, pretty brazen copaganda, in my opinion. So uh, I don't think this movie is very good. But one of the things it did do is direct me to the uh, <laughs> the direction of the original film, which is available on Hulu. That is good. So I'd recommend you check that out. But the guilty. Have you seen that one? Yeah. Uh, I I didn't watch the entire. I watched the first half. I'm gonna finish it. But okay. Yeah, I uh, I, it is very different in terms of style and in terms of the main performance. So mm. just for that reason alone, it's interesting to kind of reflect on. So did you use the term copaganda? Yeah. Yes. That's oh, a. That's a I've not heard that term before. It's a term. Yeah. It's a term. L- yeah. Look at the so. Paw Patrol discourse, Jeff, because uh, that shit is <laughs> everywhere. Paw Patrol. Yeah. Uh-huh. It is. Yeah. It's, it's, I mean, it's basically. Yeah. yeah. That, he, that Jake Gyllenhaal is a terrible propaganda? human being mm-hmm. in this movie, right? <laughs> and the movie tries to redeem him, in, or not redeem him, but like at least make you sympathize with him and or root for him in this right, movie. Right, right. And um, that is, uh, like, that fits the definition of propaganda. It's not the worst example of it, but it definitely mm-hmm. oh, is. I, I understood the term yeah. when you said it. I just never heard it before. It's, uh, yeah. All right. Yeah. Paw Patrol, mention... Jeff. Watch, watch out for Paw Patrol. It'll get your kids all brainwashed. Oh, I've avoided Paw Patrol. We're, we're firmly in Bluey. All Bluey's we watch good. is Bluey. Bluey nonstop. <laughs> I, I, I almost tweeted out this notion that um, Bluey is the only kids programming I have encountered that I can watch in infinite number of times and not get tired of. And the only reason I know that is because I've watched it an infinite number of times. I mm. mean, that's a that's a truism. Yes, yeah, yeah. You've uh, you've proved it. Uh, the same is true for Ghibli movies, which I I have also watched infinitely. So, it's possible they do exist. Uh, I kind of want to look up. Uh, remember David the Gnome guys? Oh, yeah, we're really liking that. I want to go back to that. It's on YouTube apparently. So yeah, that's the thing. I want to give a shout out to a short film I watched this week. It, uh, the I don't exactly know what the short film is called. But it's available online. Um, it's a New York Times uh, documentary. Uh, I, I, the title of it, I think, is Almost Famous, The Unchosen One. The headline of the article is also, In a Galaxy Far, Far Away, He Was Almost Anakin Skywalker. Those are pretty good. Oh, yeah, headlines, I saw this. Both of them. Yeah. And yeah. basically, this is about Devin Michael, who is a rising child actor in the 1990s, uh, and he auditioned for Star Wars. He was one of the final three people to be considered they saw like 3000 kids and he was one of the final 3 he's also featured in the documentary about the phantom menace as be like they actually show him auditioning right hanging out with Natalie Portman auditioning and uh and he didn't get the part he, you know Jake Lloyd got the part and how did that work out for Jake Lloyd yeah. though uh, yeah, I don't know that it worked out really well, but it also not getting the part didn't work out for Devin Michael either. Um, kind of a lose lose scenario there. Yeah, yeah he, he, he quit <laughs> acting afterwards. Um, and uh, this documentary is just really good. You know, it reminded me why I fell in love with Star Wars in the first place. 
Um, but it also kind of shows you the impact that like a single audition, a single moment can have in someone's life. Uh, it's really powerful and you know, it's like 15, 20 minutes long, I think, and it's free. So if you're into star Wars, you're into like this interesting moment in history where this guy almost became Anakin Skywalker and like, it could have happened. Like it it seems like it was very close. Uh, then check this out. Uh, I think the title is almost famous. The unchosen one. It's available at newyorktimes.com. Uh, all right. That's what I've been watching this week. Devendra, you've been checking out the new foundation series on Apple TV plus. Uh, this is a very expensive show, a very, very widely buzzed so about expensive. show. Yeah. I am curious, was this show worth all the money? Um, well, it, it's worth it for me to see cool science fiction backgrounds. You know, like you, you guys like screensavers. You like planets with like multiple uh, moons in the sky or other <laughs> planets like that sort of thing. Uh, this show has a ton of that. I think this show looks incredible. It is not foundation, though. It is not Isaac Asimov's foundation. So that's the thing. I'm kind of enjoying it um, in the way that I started that show. Uh, what was it called? Raised by Wolves. Remember mm. the Ridley Scott one? Yeah. Which first episode's cool. brilliant. First Amazing episode's first great. episode. Completely shit the bed yes. by the end. Yeah. Exactly. So that show looked good. Had some good ideas. Um, this one is kind of toying with several ideas of foundation it's been decades since i've read i've only read like the first book i haven't read the others um but you know the the idea of foundation is that this uh genius mathematician has basically um been able to use math to chart uh the future and where you know human civilization will go and that's bad news for the current galactic empire that's been around for thousands of years and he's predicting it's going to end so Everybody is kind of against this guy, and this this series is basically building up that whole idea. Um, it is interesting because, like, Foundation is just basically a series of disconnected stories. Sometimes right. some characters are in them, right? Um, it, it is wild, like, to think of how you would turn this into a narrative. And I think, like, the, the show's co-created by David Goyer, who I'm not a fan of, and Josh Friedman, who I am a fan of. So there's kind of like a push and pull of like good ideas and bad ideas in this. Like, I don't think it's particularly well written, but I also really like um, I just like the world building that we're seeing here. The changes from the book are kind of interesting, uh, whereas in the books, it was like what a single emperor, right? Ruling the uh, the galaxy. Basically, this one sets up an idea uh, and it's not a huge spoiler, but it's sort of like it's an emperor who's cloned himself in child form like uh middle adult form and old age it's basically a series of clones that are getting older over time but it's all cloned from one emperor and that's how he's basically being effectively immortal and it's a cool concept and lee pace plays brother day who's a sort of like adult clone i am 100 percent just watching the show for lee pace who i think <laughs> is a god among men and seeing him be basically this like very uh haughty emperor man who has you know a god among of, men <laughs> a god among men like yeah, yeah he is very good at that and uh i just enjoy seeing him like really just chomp at the scenery in the show um also really like jared harris in it because anything jared harris is in is usually great uh, he's also fantastic in uh in the expanse also in mad men so i'm i'm enjoying it it's not basically it's like it's kind of like candy to me right now like oh this is a very pretty show they paid so much money to make the show it looks ludicrously expensive and uh to its credit i'd say it has more black and brown people in it in like the first 10 minutes 
than entire seasons of some other sci-fi shows, you know? So I give it credit for that. Um, I know reviews like generally have been pretty middling on this, so I'm not like prioritizing it or anything. There are a ton of other things I need to see, but I really love just like seeing the creativity of the design of the show. And that's basically it. It, it, You're watching a very pretty screensaver. I wish I cared more about these characters. I mainly just care about Lee Pace and seeing him strut around. So I'm enjoying it in that respect. But Jeff, I believe you were watching it too, right? Yes. Uh, and I am, I mean, foundation was a really seminal moment for foundational. Yeah. yeah, Foundational even indeed. Um, my dad, I have, I may have told the story before, but my dad basically handed me two books when I was a kid Mm -hmm. or like his old, like 1960s paperback copies of foundation trilogy and the Lord of the Rings trilogy. Oh, like, very cool. Those like, are the two, this is handed, all you need, son, for life. Yeah, yeah. He, he like handed me those and they were the copies that he read and they were like not expensive. They were paperback, but just like, you know, like those, you know how those old uh, sci-fi paperback and fantasy paperback uh, books that were like where the text was pushed up right to the edge of the page, mm-hmm, you know, just mm-hmm. like they squeezed out every mm-hmm, mm-hmm. inch of the page <laughs> to, yeah. uh, to have fewer, to keep costs it, down. It, it's and like, it has like the look and feel of like a small brick, right? Like, Absolutely. Totally. And yeah, it has yeah. that specific smell too. Like somehow it's absorbed all the smells of every room yeah. it's ever been in. Love yeah, it. And it feels Miss like, it. like the pages were yellowed, like the day it was made, you know, they yeah. didn't yellow over time. They were just always yellowed. Um, anyway, so, it really exploded my imagination and got me into science fiction hard, like hard. Like I was, I, you know, I'd already loved Star Wars, but all of a sudden I was reading Arthur C. Clarke and Robert Heinlein. And, you know, I just went like, it just it was crazy. And I got mm-hmm. super into Isaac Asimov and, you know, the, the robot, no- I read the robot novels and I read the foundation novel. I mean, not that order, but. Um, and then, you know, this magic trick that he does where he like combines them and they're both in the same universe. It's like, it's incredible. And it just, it, it blew me away. So these were, you know, these books meant a lot to me. And, you know, and in the context of us talking about preacher and stuff, uh, this is your preacher situation. Yeah, (laughs) it it, it is. But I, I, for some reason in this case, I think it's different when you adapt a comic book, which is a visual medium. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Anyway, that's a whole other diversion, yeah. you know, sand tangent. But I specifically tried to go into this show without baggage, like not without, without expectations. I, mm-hmm. It's been a long time since I read the Foundation books. Uh, I've reread them. A no- I, I think I've reread the Foundation books more than any other books I've ever reread. Huh. And But it's been a while since I've reread them. So it's not super fresh in my mind. And part of me was like, oh, I'll go back and read the books. Again, I was like, no, no, no. I'm going to like try to take this show at face value because I knew they'd spend a ton on it. And I was very curious. And honestly, I, I, I'm I, enjoying it more than I thought I would. Yeah, I, yeah. It, it, as you said, Devendra, it is, the money is on the screen. I mean, it it is very pretty show. I feel like and, I don't have um, to see Dune partially too because it's just like, it's doing so much of that. I'm like, man. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> It's, I, I, I texted uh, Dan Trachtenberg when I was watching it, like asking him questions of like, how much money did that cost? Like there's just shots where I'm like, did they just have extra budget and went, let's just put the camera here. You know, it's yeah, crazy. Yeah. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I've, only, I've watched four episodes so far and I am encouraged that it's – so Devendra also referenced this a bit. The thing that's magical about the Foundation books is that it is basically a series of short stories that are connected by this mm-hmm. 
this multi-generational plan, right? Harry Seldon, who's this guy who predicts, you know, these huge course of history with his math, sets out to fix problems. And so you see like this plan that he sets in motion that takes place over hundreds and thousands of years. And so the, the books like leap forward in time. And I was very worried that the show was not going to do that. And it does seem like they are doing that to a bit, which, which I think is, is a good thing. But I will tell you a quick anecdote, another quick anecdote, which is in 1988, which is probably earlier than most of the people listening to this were born, <laughs> I was 12 years old. Uh-huh. And I already was in love with the foundation books. I had read them recently. I don't, I don't know what age I first read them, but I, I, it wasn't too long before I was 12. And in 1988, Isaac Asimov published the first new foundation book in like right. know, 20 years or 10 years, yeah, whatever it was. Yeah. It was called Prelude to Foundation. And it was the origin story of Harry Seldon. And I remember vividly signing up for a science fiction book club, which in those days, there was like these book clubs where you could get like eight books for a dollar and then you get a new <laughs> one every month, you know? It was such a racket. But I signed up for this book club to get Prelude to Foundation. I was so excited to read it. And it was terrible. It was, it was such a disappointment. <laughs> It was so bad, um, in my opinion. I mean, I don't know. I haven't revisited that book. I just remember it being a massive letdown because it was this pedestrian tale of this one guy, Harry Seldon. And those, uh, those books were so much grander than that. They took place over eons and were the machinations of huge forces in the galaxy. And it was just like this huge mind-bending sci-fi that that captured my imagination and then he like writes this like boring kind of pedestrian tale of this dude and so when the first couple of episodes are like here's harry selden and you know I, it, it starts like the first book starts but i was very worried that that's where we were going to live and i'm mm -hmm. encouraged yeah. that it doesn't seem to be doing that it takes several episodes to get there but um i'm kind of sticking with this and i and i'm i'm hopeful that it i mean it definitely gets mired down in like weird romancy stuff that just feels <laughs> like, uh, you know, needs to happen in the post Game of Thrones world where we get some nudity and salacious content. Like it just feels tacked on in a weird way to the show. So that it's not great, but I'm, there's enough visually that's exciting and um thematically that that is compelling that i i'm i'm sticking with it i'm enjoy i've i've been enjoying each episode and i haven't like been pulled to my phone during any moments of right, the episode right. I've, I've been into it so i'm into it yeah good enough all right well that's foundation and it is available right now on apple tv plus it's one thing that davindra and jeff have been watching Hey, it's Jeff jumping in here with a message from our sponsor, Shudder. Hey, summer is over. There's a chill in the air. Spooky season has arrived. So let's watch scary movies. There's no better place for horror than Shudder, which has kicked off its annual 61 Days of Halloween, a two-month, super-sized celebration Full of new movies and series like a new season of Creep Show and VHS 94. 
the brand new installment in the acclaimed found footage anthology franchise. And that's just the start of Shudder's unbeatable Halloween lineup. There are new specials from Elvira and Joe Bob Briggs, a new season of the Boulet Brothers' Dragula, their new docuseries Behind the Monsters on the origins and pop culture dominance of your favorite modern movie monsters, and so much more. You got Carrie from 1976. You got Elvira's 40th anniversary, very scary, very special special. There's so much awesome, awesome stuff. You got to check it out. One of my favorite Shudder exclusives, you've heard me talk about it before on the film cast, is a movie called Scare Me. Oh, I loved subscribing to Shudder. It's worth it just for that movie alone. Scare Me. Check it out. Such a clever, awesome premise. So well done. And there's a vast selection of content on Shudder extensive international library of movies, a full range of genres and types of movies from old classics to modern favorites. Get started streaming the best horror, thriller, and supernatural content. Shudder's expertly curated collection includes must-see titles like Vicious Fun, The Mortuary Collection, and PG Psycho Gorman. I watched that movie as well. What a wild ride Psycho Gorman is. Oh, you got to see it. Plus all the best horror documentaries and the hit Creepshow TV series from executive producer Greg Nicotero of The Walking Dead. To try Shutter free for 30 days, go to Shutter.com and use promo code FILMCAST. That's S-H-U-D-D-E-R.com. Promo code F-I-L-M-C-A-S-T. Jeff Kanata, what have you been watching this week? Oh, there's a few things I can just get through quickly. Um, I checked out the new Jon Stewart show, The Problem with Jon Stewart, which is also an Apple TV. Spending a lot of time on Apple TV Plus all of a sudden. Got the good content Um, right now. Ted Lasso's finishing up, like everything. Yes. I'm surprised how much I'm... I'm, uh, Clicking on that yep. app in my you, you uh, got to do Roku. for all mankind next, like you know. Yes, I, it's I, all lining I, up. I, I, we, yes, indeed. Um, anyway, the problem with you know John Stewart. Just, I, I just want to say about Apple TV Plus, like what what is interesting about it is like it, it does feel distinct from everything else. Do you know what sure. I mean? Like, yes, yeah. I, I agree. I, I guess I don't even know if it's necessarily better than like a, an HBO Max or something like that. But it's just like I just know that I'm gonna find something on there that's like pretty decent but that and, and that has like been curated and that not necessarily a lot of other people are talking about um sure that is and true I, and i don't I think, think it launched it. great i feel like no. it's mm-hmm. kind of found its footing post lasso you know it's kind of yeah, found its yeah, footing. Yeah. yeah yeah exactly so i also watched the problem with john stewart but yeah jeff i'm really curious what you thought of this show well i mean daily show when he was uh, under his stewart ship wow See what i did there can we can we just like end the podcast now? Yeah. <laughs> oh, we still have our review. Sorry. Okay. Yeah. Anyway. Uh, it was it was I'm very. Sorry formative. about that, listeners. I'm sorry you had to hear that. <laughs> <laughs> it was very formative uh, for me. You know the the, the Bush years and the uh, early mm-hmm. Obama years. I mean, it was like un, unmissable. I, yeah. I you know yeah. those are the years when I had a TiVo box and I TiVoed uh, the Daily Show and the Colbert Report, and it was like I didn't miss an episode. It was it was very very you know it's it's such a weird thing to think that that was so long ago now, but it. It was a big deal. Anyway, so him being back on television, I, I rushed to check it out. And, you know, there's definitely Daily Show DNA here, but it's interesting some of the things that they're doing differently. Like the show starts with a view inside the writer's room and kind of behind the scenes of them 
figuring out how the show is going to work. And I liked that a little bit of that behind the curtain uh, element. And it is um, not, you know, trying to cover all of the news of the day. It is, it is picking one topic and going deep on it. Uh, the first episode um, is, is frankly very disturbing uh, in, in a way that I feel, you know, it's, it's something that needs to be said in a certain sense. But I, at one point, um, I broke down crying watching it. Uh, it is very disturbing. Um, it, it holds up, you know, a, a uh, camera on horrible, uh, you know, it, it's basically talking about the, the practice of the military to just burn their garbage and basically causing uh, horrible yeah. health side effects to military personnel. Um, and you and see how it. poorly and how poorly those personnel are treated after the fact. Yes. As well. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it, I mean, it's, it's activism and I, it's activism that, uh, I applaud and certainly this in the context of all the various bombardment of 24 hour news, these are the, these are huge stories that just don't seem to get covered. And I appreciate that Stuart is using a platform that Apple is giving him to do that. But I have to say, I, I, Mm-hmm. I had a hard time uh, getting through the episode. It, it is very, it's harrowing. It, it is it is a harrowing first episode. So I don't know if, how you felt about it, Dave. I think it's interesting. It, uh, it's, I think if you went in expecting like the Daily Show 2.0. Right, comedy it's, and whatnot. It's, yeah. Yeah, it's, I definitely did not find it very entertaining. And in fact, the entertaining bits felt really discordant with the rest of the show. You know, I like agree. There, these I little agree. sketches that he does that are like, just felt very off in terms yeah. of the tone of like the show. Like a fake commercial that he does right. at one point. It, it's just like, it's so bizarre. Yeah. And I, so my, my thoughts on it are number one, if John Stewart wants to do something more serious and investigative journalism esque with his work, he has more than earned the right to do that. And I think like, I fully support it. I'm, I will probably watch it. Uh, although even he himself in the episode acknowledges that most people will probably watch clips of it on YouTube as opposed to watching the whole show. I thought that was an um, amazing moment where he said right at the end, he's like, yeah. let's be, face it, you're probably not even watching this. <laughs> <laughs> you're probably not even watching this part because you're watching it in clips. Um, so I, I do think it's like it's worth supporting people when they try to do other things. Uh, all three of us uh, on this podcast have in various ways tried to do other things beyond like what people might know us from. Right. You mm-hmm. know, and I think like when we try to do other things, like when uh, Jeff does the dungeon run or I do culturally relevant or whatever, like it's, it's nice when like people w- like support us when we venture off in different directions, you know, when Devendra launches in gadget podcast, right? Like, um, and so I definitely don't begrudge anyone like trying to do a completely different thing. The thing that I can't get away from though, is that it does to a large degree feel like what John Stewart is trying to do on this show is a formula that his successors have already perfected in other shows. <laughs> right. Yeah. Absolutely. Specifically Samantha B and uh, John Oliver and John yep. Oliver, like yeah. John Oliver being like the closest, right. Which is like, yeah. it is an in-depth deep dive that lasts like 20 minutes into like one specific topic. That's like journalistically valuable that reveals all this important information. And it's just like, he has, you know, 
there are people who don't like John Oliver and don't like his style, and that's a completely reasonable point of view. But wh- I think whatever you say about him, he has he has honed what he does down to like an art to, or a science, mm-hmm. right? Like and he has a great he, team around him, like doing exactly. good research. He, he like, has like it, a it diverse well team, like yeah. very rigorous journalism is happening on that show, and it just feels like this show is trying to do that show, but it feels extremely unpolished compared to it um i will like uh, the only pushback i'll give you i I think you make a very good point but i the only pushback i'll give you is that i think stewart is unparalleled in the interview yes which which john oliver does not have does not have at all and and it is on display in this first episode like he sits down and it is laser sharp like he's he's a very good interview he's like incredible one of the best yeah. So in that sense, like I do think there's a value to his voice and his his skill set being on the air, right? Um, but uh, but I agree because you're getting material you wouldn't otherwise get from right, 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 right. Yeah, but, and, and the way he can like yeah. sit down and with somebody and get things out of them and 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 engage them in an intelligent and informed way, like there's not anybody else. Uh, anybody else that does that, even if it's, um, you know, uh, Colbert or any of his successors, there's always sort of a comedic element that John Stewart is, is funny and naturally funny, but he's so, I think he's so able to get to the heart of a, of a thing in, in an interview and really hone in on the spine of the, of the topic. And I, I don't know anybody else that can do it quite like him. Yeah. Um, I, I agree with you. Like the interviews are interesting. Um, but I, I think basically what we're watching is a show in the process of finding its own footing. Yeah, yeah. And, I agree with that. And I think that when you see the opening seg- the, the the little interstitials of like l- the interstitial segments are literally them trying to figure out what the show will be. Right? Yeah. And so I think the show is still trying to figure out what it's trying to be. Well, and, um, and the the yeah. opening credits are like a bunch of what I assume to be uh, <laughs> alternate titles. Alternate right? titles, what they considered calling the show. So it yeah. really does feel like. They're figuring it out as they go. Yes, mm-hmm. totally, mm-hmm. totally. Yeah. And so and one thing uh, yeah. I get from him, by the way, and a lot of other people who have platforms is that people are people are fucking pissed, guys. <laughs> shit's, yeah. shit's all fucked up. The world <laughs> is on fire. We are careening into a complete apocalypse. So, yeah, I, not, I think not to mention some, a constitutional crisis for sure. Yeah, but yeah, e- everything I, all at once. Um, I think uh, John Oliver has had years to kind of like. He he has done his thing, and he's done a great job of being explanatory around that. Whereas, uh, you know, John Stewart has not had that. He hasn't had this outlet for a while, right? So I feel like th- there's a lot of things that he has to work through and figure out how to modulate himself to actually not seem too preachy, you know, while also you know actually making people pay attention and whatnot. Yeah, he has a lot to get off his chest, obviously. Yeah, and yeah. So it is. Uh, it is interesting yeah. that the show is is structured and presented like The Daily Show, and that they have a live audience that ostensibly is there to provide laughter yeah and right. nothing he uh, it's very interesting in that first episode like he's not making jokes exactly mm-hmm. and there, there's the, like three laugh lines the whole like 45 minutes basically. and and the audience yeah. it, it kind of doesn't know they, yes they want to be supportive of him right? and he's just yeah. kind of sitting there in the awkward silence of it all it's <laughs> it's kind of extraordinary to see actually it's fast it's yeah. totally yeah. fascinating it's totally fascinating because it's like we all have these expectations of what the john stewart show will be and this show kind mm-hmm. of subverts it. I think it is valuable. Like what he's doing is valuable, but I think as a piece of entertainment, yeah. it's very rough around the edges. And actually 
this is one of the first shows that I felt like would be better as or would be better as a podcast, which several people which pointed out to me that it is a podcast. You can yep. apparently listen to this in podcast form. But the the as an example, the interviews that are on the show, like the, he interviews like a, a gentleman from the military, the Department of Defense. That is a rough interview, man. And I don't just mean uncomfortable. I mean, mm-hmm. like it is I, I think it goes on long past the point when it is journalistically interesting. Yeah, and as a result, reminded me of a normal podcast conversation. <laughs> you know, you may like, be experiencing uh, that right now. Yeah, I'm, like, <laughs> I'm like, this would be perfect for oh, oh, a thing that outstays is welcome and goes on way longer than it has to. Why isn't this a podcast? <laughs> Basically, uh, and so it, it did feel to me like, man, this is like really rough around the edges. Um, so yeah. I, I support him in what he's doing, and I'm going to continue watching. But yeah, it, this is. This is a work in progress right now, but he's he's earned so much credit and he's such an important voice. Uh, I do think you should check out The Problem with Jon Stewart on Apple TV+. Plus. So um, those are Jeff and my thoughts on The Problem with Jon Stewart on Apple TV+. Plus. Jeff Kanata, you've been watching a couple more things, right? Yeah, I mean, we don't have to go into it. It's not super No, let's go into them, Jeff. Let's go into them, please. Okay. Um, <laughs> I, I watched a show on uh, HBO Max, I believe, called 10-Year-Old Tim, which is a new animated... Uh, sort of an adult animated show. Um, I think it is a spinoff of another show that I'm not aware of, like the problem with Tim or something with Tim, something about Tim, um, which I, I wasn't aware of, but I, I saw it in the the blurb. I was like, Oh, this was a, another show. Anyway, I like it. Uh, I like it. It is, it is a wry. Uh, it's one of those shows where it's about a bunch of 10 year olds, but it's a bunch of uh, clearly very grown up adults doing the voices and not attempting to be kids at all. Uh, it's kids who don't talk like kids. It's very much adults talking like adults, but in kids situations, like in elementary school. Um, and it's very wry. You know, it's the kind of, uh, the kind of humor where it's just like, they said it, say it right out, you know, that, uh, well, I guess, uh, I, I guess I'm going to jail. That kind of, that kind of thing, you know, that it, it, it's that kind of thing, but I like it. It's, uh, it's a good diversion. It's a good animated show. I it feels very improvised. Is it like um, South Park style, where like no kids I are it to saying... South Park? I compare it more to like Doctor Cats. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's that kind of like uh, a bunch of funny people uh, in scenarios that mm-hmm. they don't even believe. You know, like the, <laughs> at no point do you think the char- do you think the actors want you to think that they're actually ten year olds in this situation, but. It's just all like an in joke. It's, you know, there's a, the the first episode is uh, like a baseball game and, uh, or maybe it's the second episode, whatever. It's a baseball game. And, you know, he's talking, he's standing there, you know, going to swing the ball. He's like, well, that, that, wow, that, that ball came very fast. That was very fast. It's, you know, it's very like self-aware and meta, um, but in, in all good ways. I, I, I liked it. It's called, um. 10 year old Tim. Uh, yeah. First of all, I think the show is actually called 10 year old Tom. Is it? <laughs> Here we go mistaken? again, yeah. Jeff. Here we yep. go again. Yeah. Um, is, is it better? But, but in Jeffrey's defense, uh-huh. uh, the creator of the show created a previous show called the life and times of Tim. Yes. So, uh, I can understand why this would be confusing, but life and anyway. times of Tim. And now he's making 10 year old Tom. Correct. Huh. So 
Well, it it just is, seems like it's meant to mess me up. Indeed, indeed. Uh, I'm sure he had you in mind specifically. Yeah, what an uh, asshole. So 10-year-old Tom streaming right now on HBO Max. Jeff Kanata is a fan. Jeff, anything else you've been watching? Yeah, you know, this is kind of a recurring theme this week. I, I think I'll mention it again in, when we talk about um, Many Saints of Newark. But I haven't really talked to you guys here or in an After Dark about uh, the new theater room that I have in the house that I bought. Uh, I Oh, yes. You know, I bought, uh, you know, moved to Denver. We bought a house here and uh, fortunate, like it just it, serendipity. Well, we I mean, we picked the house, but it happened to have, it was the reason I wanted it, but it yes. worked out that my <laughs> wife also wanted this house uh, and it yep. had a, a theater, a movie theater room in the basement that the previous owners had built. Um, and, and like a proper theater, it looks like, like you, you've got like your stadium seating, you know, you've yeah. got like, it looks nice. It's incredible. Now, I didn't even know how <laughs> incredible it was when we bought it. I knew it was a room that yeah. had no light, that had like sconces and lighting yeah, that looked like a theater. if somebody builds a room dedicated to a pursuit, uh, it's probably going to be pretty good. Come on. Well, but I, I didn't, I mean, we, we put an offer in the house and it was all yeah, kind yeah. of a whirlwind situation. I didn't have a chance to like watch any content in it before we owned it. Um, so Amazing. I just knew that there was a big movie, you know, a projection screen, a projector. Yeah, it's got nice a movie seating. theater in it. It's uh, a, yeah. you know, it's a two and a half bath, one movie theater, not two. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, the crazy thing, I mean, I don't need to get into this, but like it's in the basement. So it didn't affect the value of the house. So we got like this this incredibly expensive movie theater that didn't actually increase the value of the home because nothing man. I'm sure nothing they hate below that. the they hate it but we yeah anyway. um so we also, it also messed us up with the appraisal but whatever it's mm. a different story the the point i'm trying to make is <laughs> but when i finally got in there we found we because of the appraisal we actually contacted the guy who installed the theater for the previous owner and he gave us the rundown on what they did and it turns out that the sound system that they put in is like next level you guys yeah. it yeah. is the the guy there they have um what's called an um um oh god what is it audio Soundologist? I can't remember the term. It's, yeah. it's something like that. It's a really bizarre term, for, uh, acoustician or something yes, like that. Yes, um, yes, yes. Anyway, he's the same acoustician that did the 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 company Imation that does the Minions movies. Um, he did Imagine, all. I think, I think it's Imation. Illumination. 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 Yeah. yeah. Anyway, yeah. I'm not great with names today or ever, <laughs> but um, the uh, the same guy who did like their screening rooms in Hollywood, and this is like. He did this this dude's house that I now own. He That's did incredible. Like, yeah. It's it's decked out with full like THX certified it's crazy. So, I will say that I have had a delightful time just like experience I bought a um a bootleg THX Blu-ray disc from eBay that wow. has like all of the old trailers nice, on it, the nice. audience is listening trailers. How many subwoofers do you have, Jeff? Two. Yes, that's where it's at. Yeah. Two subwoofers. Okay. Dude, it shakes. I'm telling you guys, I, I want you to come <laughs> to my house just to experience this. It is this. Cr I had no idea what, what I was buying. It's this bonkers. I mean, it, it is like tuned 
perfectly for it's it's they, it's crazy. They did all the hard work right now because I am I am you know hey I, I have a basement now too and I'm in the process of just putting it all together. But uh, guys, this shit is hard. It's it's very yeah. hard to like acoustically treat a room and isolate everything and make sure everything's all perfectly level. Um, my wife and I uh, we mounted the projector screen. And that's that's like the bulk of the work I've been able to get done at this point. But at least it works. Uh, yeah. I'm very happy for you, Jeff. Like this is it. This is oh, all the man. hard work. I lucked to get out. It, they, the screen has uh, it's it's acoustically transparent, so all the speakers are behind the screen, so you don't see any speakers. It's it's crazy, you guys. Anyway, um, so I've been having all this fun listening to shit, and that brings me to what one of the things I've been watching, which is there's a new thing on Disney Plus called uh, Star Wars Galaxy of Sounds, mm-hmm. which is just, it's it's it seems to be designed for stoned people. It really does. It, it's just like clips edited together of moments from every kind of Star Wars thing. I mean, The Mandalorian, all the movies, any, any Star Wars related thing. No dialogue, no context, just like awesome audio moments. Just like, you know, the pod race section of the pod mm-hmm. race where it's isolated, no, no dialogue track, no story elements, just like the cool little blah, 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 of something going by and all that <laughs> stuff. Um, and just the hearing it in the sound system has been so awesome. I couldn't believe that, that it exists on Disney plus and it's a really cool thing. There's like several episodes. They're mm-hmm. only like 15 minutes long and they're themed around different things. Uh, really kind of cool thing that that Disney is doing. I talked in an earlier episode about they they do one with like landscapes, almost like a screensaver. It's just neat what they're doing with the Star Wars IP to have these sort of ancillary. It's not even shows; it's just content, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's the galaxy yeah. of sounds, which they they can remix a like. lot I mean, of different things. Yeah, I've talked about like some of the uh, the animation. You know, just like uh, cool animated sequences from Disney movies, they have that too. Yeah. It's it's all yeah. it's very relaxing. It's very chill. Yeah, it's really cool. Uh, I dug it. All right. Uh, well, that's Galaxy of Sounds. It's one thing that Jeff Kanata has been watching. Let's get to some weekly plugs. Weekly plugs are part of the show each week where we plug something we've created or that someone else has created that we recommend. Uh, I want to plug an interview I did with Keith Phipps, who is one of the driving forces behind the AV Club, as well as uh, the Dissolve website, RIP, and the Next Picture Show podcast. Keith and his colleague Scott Tobias have launched a new newsletter called The Reveal, which features in-depth reviews of movies, new and old. Uh, We talked about film criticism and how the industry has changed over on Culturally Relevant, the podcast uh, that I host at culturallyrelevantshow.com. Check that out. That's my weekly plug. Divinity Hardware, what's your weekly plug? Uh, I've spent the past week writing a lot about things that are happening. So my review of Windows 11 is now up at, at uh, Engadget. So I'd recommend everybody go check it out because it's it's an update that you'll likely be getting soon if you have a PC. Uh, it's really pretty. It's kind of interesting, but also like to me, it's it's like very pleasant but frustrating in new ways too. So Check it out. I'm not going to rant too much about it here. We'll also be talking about it on the Engadget podcast, of course. And we'll also be reviewing the new Surface devices. And I have the uh, Surface Laptop Studio in here. And nice. I'm now racing to get that review done for tomorrow morning as we're recording this. So, hey, a lot of stuff happening for Microsoft this week. Jeff Canada, Weekly Plug. 
been a while since I've mentioned the Dungeon Run, which is my uh, live play Dungeons and Dragons show. You don't have to know anything about Dungeons and Dragons or even like Dungeons and Dragons in order to enjoy it. It's a live storytelling show, and I'm the Dungeon Master, which means I'm the guy telling the story, guiding a group of adventurers through a thrilling fantasy tale. This last week, uh, episode 97, entitled Jailbreak, Oh, we had a really, really cool episode. You can leap into the story at any point. I do a recap at the beginning of each uh, episode that'll catch you up on all you need to know to jump in. This one is a cool one to, to start with because it is a thrilling battle uh, on multiple fronts. There's a demon invasion in this big city and our team gets split up and they have to fight demons on multiple fronts and we're jumping back and forth between different maps. Good fun. Check it out. It's the Dungeon Run. You can listen to it as an audio podcast. Works great like that, like an audiobook. book. Uh, but there's also um, video on demand where you see the visual version on YouTube by searching for the Dungeon Run. Uh, we also stream the show live on Wednesdays at 6 p.m. Pacific time at twitch.tv slash the Dungeon Run. All right. And uh, I want to give a weekly plug to our Patreon page at patreon.com slash film podcast. Uh, in recent weeks, we have covered the saga of the preacher tweets. Uh, which came to a conclusion last week. Uh, I have heard feedback that the payoff was worth it. So if you listen to part one and we're like, whatever happened to that? Uh, I think you should check out patreon.com slash film podcast. Also, this week we've got a mailbag episode. Next week we'll be reviewing Squid Game on the After Dark. That is a much requested review. Uh, so check out our review of Squid Game next week on the After Dark. Um, and thanks to everyone who donates. Never donate if it in any way causes you any financial hardship whatsoever. Uh, and if you want to support the show for free, very easy to do that. Head on over to Apple Podcasts, leave a review for us. Uh, we really do appreciate it. Hey, got to jump in here and tell you about our sponsor, HelloFresh. I love talking about HelloFresh. I made a HelloFresh meal tonight for my family. It was delicious. With HelloFresh, you get fresh pre-measured ingredients and mouth-watering seasonal recipes delivered right to your door. You skip trips to the grocery store. And you can count on HelloFresh to make home cooking easy, fun, and affordable. That is why HelloFresh is America's number one meal kit. Fall is busy, but HelloFresh's recipes save time. Save you time. You don't want to spend your time meal planning and shopping and chopping. You got to get back to what matters. Eating delicious food. All the other stuff that you like, too. But HelloFresh makes it so that you can give your family, like my family, Great meals, home-cooked meals where you know what's in it with fresh ingredients. They have family-friendly menus with tons of options for drama-free dinners. 50 menu and market items to choose from every single week, from vegetarian meals and calorie-smart choices to extra-special gourmet options. There's something for everyone to enjoy with recipes designed and tested by professional chefs and nutritional experts to ensure deliciousness and simplicity. Like I said, I made a HelloFresh meal for my family tonight. I'm a happy subscriber and have been for years now. Years we've been doing HelloFresh. It's made me fall in love with cooking. I truly enjoy giving my, my family something delicious to eat, making a menu that isn't the same thing over and over again. I love picking out what we're going to have weeks in advance in the app. It's so great. There's so many great options. Go to HelloFresh.com slash Filmcast14 right now. Use our promo code Filmcast14 and you'll get up to 14 free meals, including free shipping. That is HelloFresh.com slash and the word Filmcast14. 
Use the promo code FILMCAST14. You'll get 14 free meals, including free shipping. Okay, let's get to our review of The Many Saints of Newark. What do you want, Richard? I'll be honest with you. I want to do a good deed. I want to do a lot more. The best things in life are free. I try to set an example for my nephew. Give them to the birds and bees. Anthony got kicked out of school. I went to all that trouble. And for what? I'm always being accused. You gotta be good. That's what I want. I want to do whatever I can to help the family. That's what I want. It don't get everything, it's true. What it don't get, I can't use. I want money. Wonder what they talk about in there. I didn't catch the name. Pussy. <laughs> Put him on the table. I think I just got this jacket. That was from the trailer for The Many Saints of Newark, the new Sopranos film written by David Chase and directed by Alan Taylor. I'm going to read the plot summary of this movie from IMDb. Witness the making of Tony Soprano, the story that reveals the humanity behind Tony's struggles and the influence his family, especially his uncle Dickie Moltisanti, had over him becoming becoming the most iconic mob boss of all time. End quote. Now, I should point out that during our conversation in the pre-spoiler section, you should assume throughout we are going to be spoiling The Sopranos, the HBO original series that ended 13 years ago. So uh, there will be spoilers for The Sopranos, uh, but we will try to save spoilers for the movie until after the spoiler section. Do you think us- Tony Soprano is the most iconic mob boss of all time? <laughs> I, mean, I don't know if they, I agree with like that. I anyway, think so. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, he's up there. He's up there. I, I won't say he's not up there. I don't know. His most iconic? One of the most? Pro- they yeah, should have yeah, made yeah. it one of the most. One they should of the have just, most. Yeah. yeah. Okay. I am extremely honored to welcome our guest today for the podcast. I have spent hundreds of hours of my life reading this person's work, and he's been hugely influential to me as a critic and as an online personality. Matt Zollersites is a critic and author of books such as The Wes Anderson Collection, Mad Men Carousel, and The Sopranos Sessions. His forthcoming book, A Lie Agreed Upon, The Deadwood Chronicles, is currently available for pre-order. Matt Zollersites, welcome to the Filmcast. Thank you for having me. Matt Sites, I told you this when we did our sound check, but this is how much I'm a fan of Matt Sites. I pre-ordered <laughs> his Deadwood book. Yeah. Uh, but I have not seen Deadwood yet. That's, I know. That's how I know. We're on you about that. Yeah. <laughs> but I, well, I, I plan to start watching it once I get the book. You know, I need, well, I need for, a book to guide me through it. Fortunately, uh, all, uh, all, of the, all of the television books that I've done, they're about a single show. Uh, and, so, and this is going to be the third. They're written in such a way so that, you know, every episode gets its own essay, but I always refer. I will refer to things that had happened previously, but I never refer to any things that haven't that have not happened yet. So you oh. can, you know, you can read along with the book. You can watch along with the book and not yes. worry that I'm going to give away something like four seasons from now. Extremely um, considerate, uh, companion piece. Considerate. That's it's great. Appreciated. It's appreciated. So, uh, Matt Zollersites, you literally wrote the book on The Sopranos along with Alan Sepinwall, The Sopranos Sessions. Uh, it's a book I read along with my recent rewatch of The Sopranos. And I am curious, going into this movie, what were your expectations? Uh, and I'm curious whether the movie lived up to them. It's been over a decade since we've had any original Sopranos content. So were your hopes high or were your hopes middling for this one? 
Well, they were they were neither because I, you know, I I know David Chase's work and I know David well enough to know that whatever I thought I was getting is not what I'm going to get. Mm. <laughs> that's kind of his MO. I mean, that's the Sopranos was uh you know, the the reason the show was so popular and and influential was not just because of what it did, but how it did it. And uh I have to credit Alan Sepinwall for this observation, but it's really the genius, the real genius of that show was figuring out that you can create surprise not just by doing a certain thing, but by placing the action in a certain spot. And the favorite example for, for both of us is uh, the season two episode uh, where, uh, where Ralph, uh, where, I'm sorry, uh, Richie April gets shot by Janice. And, uh, you know, they, they introduce him in the first episode uh, of uh, season two and uh or second episode actually and um we just assume that it's all building towards a climax in the final episode of the season where tony will kill richie Mm -hmm. and instead they kill richie in the second to last episode and it's not tony who does it it's janice and it's after you know they have a fight and he and he, he punches her in the kitchen and she goes into the next room and gets a gun and shoots him in the chest and that's the end and Tony has to dispose of the body. And like, it's so audacious that even now I laugh when I think about it. Um, <laughs> yeah. There's, and, there's other and, moments and of audacity. a lot. Yeah. There's, there's other moments of audacity that I can recall as well. I, I actually, uh, one of the subplots uh, of the show was Furio's emotional affair with Carmela Soprano. And I remember <laughs> reading your book. I think you didn't, it was either you or Seppenwall did an interview with David Chase um, about, why there was never a confrontation between Furio and the question was asked, why was there never a confrontation between Furio and Tony Soprano? And David Chase said, if there had been a confrontation, then you know exactly how it would have played out. They would have fought. And then uh, Tony would have killed Furio because the show's not going to continue with Furio killing Tony. And, right. he, and he basically was like, <laughs> and why, and why do we need to go through all that? That was his question. Yeah. It was like, why do we need to go through all that? Just, and that's why in the show, Furio just completely vanishes, never to be seen from again. <laughs> he goes to his, uh, well, his he, planet. Yeah. He leaves. He leaves because he knows if he stays, he'll be killed. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. So right. he leaves. He just leaves. And that's, and that's, you know, it's not only the right ending for that subplot, it's also true to the spirit of, of, of Carmela's sense of, of uh, the ideal romance. I mean, you know, Furio. Mm-hmm. Looks like the he, he, you know look at the guy he looks like somebody who'd be on the cover of a romance novel, yeah. And yeah, and yeah. the way that they resolved this is very much like uh, you know the remains of the day, uh, which is uh, you know discussed between Carmela and Father Phil. You know it's it's very it's very very consistent. Like the way this would play out is the way it would play out in a nineteenth century novel where they can't have sex because you know they're servants in the same castle or one of them's a priest or something you know right, it's just, right, right. you know it, it, it it's but that's yeah that's a great one and then of course uh you know there's a lot of them i mean there's there's you know the disappearing russian and pine barons and yeah. there's uh you know there's the the uh uh you know so many characters get killed um kind of unexpectedly like sometimes they don't even get murdered like there's one guy 
one mob guy who's an informant who dies in season three in the middle of a conversation with some FBI people. He just he just pauses awkwardly <laughs> yeah. and then he chokes a little bit and dies. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then of course and then of course there's uh you know, Jeff, you were saying like, is he the the uh the most iconic mob boss of all time? Uh, I don't know if he's the most iconic mob boss of all time, but I would say the ending of the Sopranos is definitely one of the, if not the most audacious ending for a prestige drama of all time, right? Sure, yeah. Um, which is the smash cut to black. And of course, I know, Matt Zoller cites you and Alan Sepinwall. Uh, actually, there's a great article at Vulture where you guys argue about what exactly this means. But uh, that, of course, a, an amazing way to subvert expectations, right? Yeah, I think so. And, and you know, but it's also just very much in keeping with... Uh, what the show is and the the show is as i have been saying for years and years now and i'm so gratified that people finally seem to be accepting this is it's about living with the not knowing yeah and it's, it's about, about questions the, not asked, answers right yeah it is yeah. and it's also about the idea that you know so much of what so much of the characterization and the storytelling on the show is rooted in in psychology and psychotherapy and in freud and jung and and uh, you know the 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 Janus face and and you know the idea that there's this concept uh, called self states, which is you know I, I mean it's too complicated to really go into at length, but the idea is that the angry, uh, bitter, paranoid you and the sweet, kind, uh, caring you, and uh, the impulsive you and the patient you—they're all you. It's not like there's a true version of you. It's like a hall of mirrors and there's different representations of you and they're all you. And, and I think the Sopranos more than any show that came prior to the Sopranos understands that. And, and that's why it's so important. It's because um, every show that, that uh, owes something to the Sopranos, that's good. It, it, what it's taking is that aspect of the characterization. The fact that there are more, there's more than one way to read a scene. There's more than one take on a character there's more than one motivation for why people do things. And there are some questions that you're just not going to get the answers to. And you can pretend that you have the answers, but you don't. And that's life. Indeed. Well, given all that, what did you make of the many saints of Newark? Well, I should start by saying that uh, when I heard that this thing was in production, I laughed because it went into production in summer of 2018 shortly after Alan and I had finished doing interviews with David in which he, <laughs> he said that, uh, he was done. He basically, he was done with the Sopranos. <laughs> never again. <laughs> and you're like, hit, hit publish on the book. Now we're never <laughs> going to need any new material for it. Well, every time I, mean, I try to get out, they pull me back in. <laughs> exactly. Well, it's not the first time that happened to me. I mean, I was putting together the first edition of, you know, there've been like multiple Wes Anderson books now, but the first one covered his, his first, uh, at the time, it was six films, and we were getting the book ready to ship out to the printer, and then I read the announcement in Variety that <laughs> Moonrise Kingdom is going to open the Cannes Film Festival. And I was like, what? And we had to scramble to come up with a chapter. You know, that last chapter was thrown together. I'm not kidding. In about two weeks. You know, I was like, I called Wes, and I'm like, we need to do one more interview. And he's like, I can't. I'm, I'm in post-production on the movie. I'm like, if we don't do it, this you're going to have a movie with no, you know, that's not in the book and the book's already out and it's just going to be bad. So let's do this. So we did it, but you know, that's, uh, you know, but the, the, the works have a life independent from anything that's written about them. So that's fine. But, 
but I did think it was funny. And I did wonder if maybe, uh, you know, months of David talking to me and Alan for this book, uh, <laughs> maybe made him think, I don't know, maybe there's life in the old show yet. Mm-hmm, I mean, perhaps. he'd certainly been thinking about it long, uh, you know, long before they did the movie. Um, and when they finally finished the movie, and of course I followed the production of the movie up to and including the pandemic when they did extensive additional shooting, um, it wasn't reshoots. It was more like they took things away and added new things. And, uh, uh, that was when, and they were actually experimenting what they always intended to have a framing device and they couldn't settle on what it was. Um, and I guess we should save how they answered that question for the next segment. But, uh, um, but when I heard that it was finally finished and they were ready to show it to people, I asked if they could show it to me twice in a row. I said, look, if you're going to, if you're going to put this thing in a theater, uh, can you do two screenings back to back? And, and I'll, and I'll just go to both of them and like, and leave an hour in the middle so I can get some lunch or something. And they said, yeah. So I went in there, uh, at this screening room in New York and I saw it, uh, straight through two times and there was an hour break in between. And, uh, um, there were a lot of cast members from the movie and people associated with the film there, including Michael Gandolfini, who I had a very long conversation with. And I got to, I got to do that annoying thing that older relatives do where they're like, I remember when you were just a little baby. Cause I do, you know, I was at press tour in 2001, uh, when, uh, James Gandolfini, who, you know, I wouldn't say that I was friends with the guy, but we were very friendly and he liked me. And we had, every time I saw him, we had a nice conversation, but, uh, you know, I knew that his son had just been born and I gave I gave him a copy of The Very Hungry Caterpillar uh, and it was gift wrapped. But to my surprise, he unwrapped it like right there in front of me. And I guess and he had never read The Very Hungry Caterpillar. And he stood there and he read the entire thing. Just I got to stand there and watch James Gandolfini read The Very Hungry Caterpillar. Oh, listing and, off uh, <laughs> listing off all the things that the caterpillar eats, the, the sausages and the lollipops and the watermelon. It was great. It was the best. And he well, he wasn't reading it out loud. He was just reading it. And so he was no, imagining really, him reading it out loud though. That would be the best yeah. audiobook. Yeah. It, it would be absolutely the best. And he but he la- but he he was really into the story. Like you would have thought he was like a four year old kid. Like I could see he was like, Oh, every time he turned the page, he was like, Oh, and then he gets to the end. He gets to this caterpillar. He gets to, yeah, it was, it was what's next for this caterpillar. And that's exactly, he was like, I can't wait to see what happens to the caterpillar. The next time I turn the page and then he gets to the end of it and he turns into a butterfly and it makes the little noise. And, and he, and he had this huge, beautiful smile on his face. Like, like, (laughs) absolutely like a beatific smile like you would see you know if like you know a renaissance painting where somebody sees an angel that's what he looked like it was unforgettable um he just seems like a a guy that was always his his emotional life was always accessible and right there near the surface well it is and that's why he was so you know he was so great in that role and in fact he was so great that you know david said that uh he, he changed his conception of what the show could be during his audition wow. that, that he, you know, he had originally intended the Sopranos to be a more kind of exaggerated, distorted cartoonish, like, you know, almost like a natural born killers, uh, you know, maybe not that far, but in that ballpark, like it was supposed to be sort of a grotesquely exaggerated, unreal, almost cartoonish kind of thing. And, uh, he mentioned the Simpsons. He said it was going to be like, like, wow a live action Simpsons. That was kind of his vision for it. Yeah. 
And, and then James Gandolfini played it and he realized, okay, there's a way that I can do all the things that I want to do, but also have it be emotionally really involving because of this guy. Like there's something about this guy that you, you know, you like him and you care about him, even though he's a monster. And, uh, you know, I think that, I think that was really at the heart of it. And, and I think his son is, a uh, a very good actor. And, and, you know, having talked to him, like most people aren't ever going to have the opportunity to talk to Michael Gandolfini, but if you, if they do, they're going to notice that he doesn't sound like, uh, like a uh, young Tony, just like James Gandolfini didn't sound like young Tony. This is acting. And he studied, uh, 86 hours of the Sopranos, uh, to master his dad's performance. And he wow. actually sat there and made notes and studied it. Like he was studying, you know, John F. Kennedy or somebody, you know, and, yeah. and, uh, uh, and, you know, his dad had a vocal coach who helped him do that very distinctive. Like it wasn't just the New Jersey accent. It was the way that he pronounced certain words and the rhythm and all that. He had somebody who was his coach, like for the entire run of the show. And, uh, he, he, he built that thing like it was a house. And, um, uh, I think, I think, I think Michael Gandolfini did the same thing. And, um, but getting back to, you know, what did I expect from the movie? I expected that it wasn't going to give me what I thought I was going to get. And uh, David Chase's work is like that of certain other filmmakers that I admire. Like, you know, Stanley Kubrick was the person that they said this about originally, which is every Stanley Kubrick film needs to be seen twice. The first time is to disabuse yourself of whatever expectations <laughs> you had going in. Mm-hmm. And then the second time is to appreciate what the movie actually is. And every... Every film by that director, inclu- but especially the ones he made after 2001, were like that. You know, you, 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 come out, you would come out of his movies going, what the hell did I just see? And then you see it again, you go, oh, okay, all right. And, I, so, and I, I really feel this is, I really feel this movie <laughs> is that kind of a movie. Hmm. Yeah, so I, I still don't really fully understand whether you liked the movie or not, Matt. <laughs> I assume you did, based on your stories, but did you like the movie after seeing it at least twice? Yeah, I mean, but you know, I, I'm honestly not ducking the question when I say that. Did you like the movie? Is is like not a question I've ever been good at answering. Mm-hmm. Like, like <laughs> I find things, you know, I find things interesting or not interesting. And yeah, and and there are times when you know I, I absolutely am overjoyed, you know, with like practically childlike glee by something I've seen, a film or a television show. But like whether or not I liked it is just kind of not on my radar. Like there are things that I because I think liking a movie, it sort of reduces the range of possible responses to the film because there are movies that are uh, deeply unpleasant, deeply sad, (laughs) you know, just so depressing that you want to, you want to go home and just crawl into bed and not get out. But that doesn't mean they're not great. And it doesn't mean that they didn't make an impression on you. So, so I always feel like it's not that I reject the idea that we have to enjoy (laughs) entertainment, obviously, you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't have spent 30 years as a professional <laughs> critic if I believe that. I'm just saying, I think for me, there's a little more to it. And sure. I see this as to me, uh, I've seen it actually three times now. And I, if I hated it, I wouldn't see it three times, but it's not, for me, it's not a matter of, uh, do you like it? Um, I've, it's fat, it's a fascinating object that I can't stop thinking about. And so I guess the answer to the question has to be, yes, I liked it if I feel that way about it. And part of it has to do with what the movie is as its own freestanding object. Uh, But the other is it's, you know, it's relationship to the show because, you know, not just because it, it adds bits of information 
that we didn't have before. And it changes our opinion of things that happened on the show, but also because, uh, you know, the way that the story is framed is such that you, you're not entirely sure how literally you're supposed to take any of this stuff. Mm. Well, I want to come back to some of that and, you know, fair point about that not being the greatest question. I will ask mm-hmm. you next time what you found interesting about the movie, but um, let's move on. Uh, I want to hear from some of my, my colleagues and, and then would love to come back to you, Matt, about uh, as we dive into more of the plot details. But Devinder Hardwar, curious your overall thoughts on The Many Saints of New York. Yeah, I uh, I'm I'm surprised by this movie, and I think uh, Matt, you calling it interesting? No, you got to start by saying I liked it. (laughs) (laughs) I liked it. (laughs) I liked it. It's weird. This movie is baffling, guys, because it doesn't it doesn't really feel like a movie, right? It's very episodic. It sets up new characters. It relies entirely on our knowledge of the series and it's been over a decade since I finished the Sopranos, but I remember enough. I, I know like the people, a lot of them are trying to like mimic here. Um, and I found myself really enjoying it, but maybe not as a movie, right? Like I feel like I almost feel like David Chase and Lawrence <laughs> Coner were like, guys, d- don't, don't write a TV episode. Don't write a pilot. Don't write a pilot. And a couple <laughs> months later, ah, shit, we wrote a, we wrote a really good pilot, didn't we? And well, uh, it, it is, kind of you know, feels it, like it, that. It, it is two hour. It is two hours, yep. and 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 the first half of the story takes place in 1967, <laughs> and the second half takes place somewhere around 1971 or 72, and each of them is about an hour long. Yep, yep. Oh. They they can't help it. Um, but I, <laughs> it, it I, is. It's like two bonus episodes of the Sopranos. Yes, exactly. it's hilarious. Yes. It's hilarious. Yep. So I didn't go into this like really expecting to enjoy this. To be honest, like I just I feel like we didn't really need to go back to this world. And hey, I, I love David Chase. I would love to him to like see him try new things because to me that's always more interesting. But at the end of the day, when uh, when the end of this movie hit, I was like, God damn, you got me. You got me <laughs> once again, David yeah. Chase. Like I was really into it um overall really enjoyed these characters and i, end- <laughs> I somehow yeah. ended up i ended up being once again invested in the lives of these like not even like great mobsters you know like that, that's the thing about the oh, sopranos no. they weren't always great they were kind of like screw-ups and whatnot but uh, they're, they're the- remarkably mediocre gangsters <laughs> live action simpsons is honestly a great description for some of what I enjoy from that show because it's basically uh, who's that Simpson character? It, it, uh, his it's name is Joe Montaigne. It's Joe Montaigne. Weirdly, weirdly, considering that the Soprano that uh, the Simpsons predates the Sopranos. Yep, yes, yep. yes, it is. Uh, maybe that's the actual uh, source for all of this. Um, but <laughs> it, it just kind of—I want to see more of this. I want to see more of these stories and. Uh, I loved a lot of what I see here. There's stuff we could talk about in spoilers because I do think, um, you know, this movie does make me start to question certain things about the uh, the mob genre. Like, how many times do we need to see certain things again? And certainly, I have lost count the amount of times I've seen gangster Ray Liotta beat up women, you know? And this <laughs> yeah. movie yeah. does that. We, we just saw that in the Soderbergh movie, too. So I'm like, I... We could do more, guys. We got some fresh ideas, and this movie actually has some of those too. So that's why I'm like just really intrigued by it overall. All right, Jeff Kanata, walk us through your thoughts on the Many Saints of New York. Well, Dave, in light of what Matt said, I feel embarrassed <laughs> that my thoughts about this movie are best summed up in the form of a limerick. 
you know, I'm not sure Matt. I'm not, I'm not sure Matt is familiar with this practice, uh, Jeff. Maybe I we should just... you know I'm a I'm a limerick lover, but I haven't heard your limericks. So. Oh, good. Yeah. Oh, well, wow. so you are lay, under pressure now, Jeff. Lower your expectations. So, 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 so lay it on me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, lay, lower your expectations. Here's the thing: I don't even want to do this, but Dave <laughs> has has a mandate that says it, there has to be a limerick every episode, or he walks from the podcast. So I I, I don't enjoy it. I you know I, I you know, lower your expectations. Uh, especially in this this week. Oh, boy. Uh, I'm not proud of right. this one. Not proud of it. But here we go. Ready? Here we go. Mm-hmm. I need a prequel to Sopranos like I need a pool filled with pianos. <laughs> or so I thought, because what I got was as fun as a film about Thanos. Hey. <laughs> hey! Wow. Okay. No, I'm not proud of it. I mean, my favorite. My favorite was the uh, different emphasis on the word prequel mm-hmm. uh, in that opening <laughs> line. Right. Nice work. Pia- like, how work. did you get to pianos? Dude? Yeah, that's uh, that's nicely fun. done. <laughs> nicely done. Um, I, I the first thing I want to mention about this movie is the casting. It's extraordinary. I think mm-hmm. the casting of this movie is off the charts because here, here you have that classic prequel problem where you have these iconic actors <laughs> in iconic roles. And now we've got to see, we need to see the younger versions of them. And, and for some of the, the characters like Silvio, for example, in The Sopranos, it just feels like an impossible task <laughs> to show us a younger version of, you know, uh, that character. And yet I think across the board... There are, I mean, there's certainly some impressions being done, but also I think I, I just completely bought all of these people as being the younger versions of the characters that I knew really, really well. And not only that, I immediately knew who was who when I when they first walked on screen, mm, which yeah. which I thought was great. I mean, uh, Corey Stahl as Junior, like just perfect casting. So good. Mm-hmm. So good Vera yeah. Farmiga is fascinating. <laughs> as Livia Soprano, because she's doing a, an impression of um, of uh, Carmela, right? She's it, it's so clear in this movie that Tony married his mom. Well, which is completely consistent with what we know about Tony. Yeah. <laughs> it's so great, like what what she's doing. Like I, I just thought it was such a, a beautiful full circle that we come. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, you know, seeing who Livia is like for me, it, the show changes uh, big time when, uh, forgive me, I forget the name of the actress who played Livia, but uh, Nancy Marchand. Yeah. When she mm-hmm. passed, the show really changed. It had to, right? Because the show really was about this relationship between a mob boss and his mom. And then it, it sort of had to become something else to continue. But in those early seasons, she looms so large over the show. And for me, a prequel felt to me like an opportunity to explore that relationship. And I think the movie only sort of does it, but when it does it, it's fascinating. And yeah, I think it does yeah. it really well. I, I found so much, as Matt said, I think so eloquently, so much unexpected about this prequel, you know, because it's not, it's not just a prequel. And in fact, it's only sort of peripherally about Tony Soprano, you know, like yes. for all the posters of see what made Tony Soprano, it's not, hmm. not really his story in my opinion. 
I agree. Um, and yet, I agree. Yeah. and yet, I, maybe we should save this for section number two here. <laughs> yeah. I think it very much is about Tony Soprano. Mm. All right. Well, we will hear the argument uh, momentarily. But Jeff, sorry, finish what you're saying. I mean, I, I found it riveting. I think it's interesting the way, way you guys have framed it as, as feeling like two one-hour episodes interlocked. I, I didn't get that sense, but it does resonate with me having heard you guys express it that way. I, I found the movie completely riveting. The last moment of the movie, which we'll talk about in spoilers, I was like, oh, I mean, it just, yeah. it just, it was yeah. just like time traveling. It was crazy. <laughs> um, and I, I think there's so much interesting going on. I think it it takes a look at that time period in history in a really fascinating way. And it I think it expands the scope of what The Sopranos was in a really interesting way, in a way that I did not expect. I I was much more um I enjoyed the movie much more than I thought I was going in. Even as a huge Sopranos fan, uh I just I just thought that this movie really does feel like it stands. On its own, even though clearly a knowledge of the show will be helpful in appreciating it fully. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so I'll share a few quick thoughts, and then I'd love to get to spoilers so we can talk more freely. I'll just say that I thought the movie was decent as an extension of The Sopranos show, uh, in the sense that it it really effectively extends the themes of that show in a way that I appreciated, and particularly Alessandro N- Nivola uh, is just is excellent. In this movie, in my opinion, he is extremely charismatic, but also yeah. uh, feels very kind of menacing uh, and, and un- uncontrollable in many ways. The thing that The Sopranos, the show, did so well is it revealed the gulf between how people think of things and how they actually were, how mm-hmm. people remembered things and what they actually were like. And that's what I think this movie does the most effectively is... Dickie, the character Dickie Mulsanti was revered uh, highly in the show The Sopranos, but we never met that character as far as I can remember. Um, maybe in one flashback episode? I don't think so, though. Um, we never see him in a flashback. We yeah. only see him in a in a photo, a couple of photos and frames in one episode. Yeah, so we never met that character, and so th- his memory looms large over a lot of the stuff that happens in the show. And here we actually get to see him, and we get to see both what made him great, but also... Uh, I think potentially, like what the movie is trying to say is like uh, the the seeds of evil, you know, that were sowed into the family and uh, how it continued to resonate uh, decades later in, in the show itself. So uh, that, that part I really appreciated. I was a little bit disappointed about how fan servicey the movie felt oh, to man. me at times. It, it is cartoonish at times. Yeah. It, it is. It, it, and we, again, we can talk about that a little bit yeah. in spoilers, but, uh, and I, I wish as a result, it was more standalone. It did feel less like um, two, you know, a two part pilot for a new show. Um, but otherwise I thought if you're a fan of the Sopranos, I actually think this is time well spent because there is enough here that I would recommend it. So, um, all right, why don't we get to spoilers? Cause, uh, there's a lot more to discuss. Let's talk about spoilers for the many saints of Newark starting right now. Now you're looking for the secret. Can I see this coming? No, but you won't find it because of course you're not going to see this coming. You're not really looking. I have been puzzling over how it works. You don't really want to work it out. Who's in the box? I have been dying to tell you. I want to tell you my secret. Man. You want to be fooled. So, Matt, let's let's start with this question, right? Which is that this movie does something extremely shocking to the mythology of The Sopranos, right? Which is 
the reveal at the end that Corrado Soprano, aka Junior, is responsible for the death <laughs> of Dickie Moltisanti. Right. That that is. Yeah. Me, my friend and Amazing. I were stunned. We watched it together. Amazing. We were stunned. And when it's that so happened. it's so like based on nothing. Too. Yeah, it's, it's which is yeah. very so much very amazing. much consistent yeah. with the show. Like exactly, yeah. yeah, he gets killed. He probably doesn't even remember the act that got him killed. Right. <laughs> yeah. 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 Exactly. And so I'm curious, like, um, you know, the the killing of Dickie Moltisanti was a major plot point in The Sopranos. I think Sopranos season four, episode one, if I recall correctly, um, was the one where Tony Soprano took Christopher Moltisanti to a crooked cop's home and said, like, this is the guy that killed your father. Um, you should kill him, and uh, and then we never really found out whether or not that cop actually did it. Now, right? I don't know that we have a definitive answer here, but we certainly know who is actually responsible as a result of this movie, um, which is that it was uh, it was, it was uh, Junior Yeah, it was Junior, junior yeah. all along. Yeah. It was Junior all along. Um, so, what did you make of? What was your reaction to that, Matt? What did you think of that when that was revealed? <laughs> I'm not gonna lie. I I, I laughed. I laughed with delight. <laughs> <laughs> because because you know junior was such a petty person yeah you know he was a petty he was an incredibly petty person oh he man used his power. he was a terrible mob boss i mean tony <laughs> for all of his faults tony i think was a great mob boss for that particular crew because you know at least you know he he never resorted to violence unless uh he either had an explosion of rage that was out of nowhere or if he had no other alternatives open to right. him. and <laughs> and, yep. and uh, particularly as you get later into the show he looks for ways to resolve situations that don't involve violence, like uh, when he sends, he contrives to send Feech Lamana back to prison. Yes, in season five. So, so you know, there's that. But yeah, I. Uh, but I will say that uh, I, having seen this movie three times, possibly four, because I watched certain scenes again several <laughs> times when I was writing pieces about the show. Mm-hmm. I formulated a, a sort of a grand unifying theory of this film in relation to the show. Would you like to hear it? I would yes. love to hear sure. it. Please. Okay, here we go. The Sopranos is, you know, in addition to other things, it's a horror movie. It's a horror movie about how, uh, no matter how hard, you know, it, it's about the the inability of knowing if we actually have free will or not. Are we, do we, are we the masters of our own destiny or are we the caption, the captains of our own ship, or are we just sort of floating along on this tide and, and what happens to us is preordained. And so what's the main story in, in the many saints of Newark? Uh, it's, it's Dickie Moltisanti, uh, impulsively killing his father and taking his stepmother as a lover. That's Oedipus. <laughs> my friends yeah yeah mm-hmm. and and as a and as a, a you know as a high school teacher said to me back when i was just an impressionable 17 year old and i never forgot it he said uh what is the story of oedipus rex it's it's who is responsible for this plague on thebes oh wait a second it's me <laughs> <laughs> you know yeah. and and so we have this character and alessandro Navola and i talked about this in an interview which is i believe going up wednesday uh, but we had this whole long section where he talked about the relationship between Dickie's story and that of Oedipus and just Greek tragedy generally, particularly this idea that he gains an awareness of the fact that he that uh, things are turning to crap and and, uh, you know, he he's responsible for it. And everything that he does only seems to seal his fate. And it really does feel like the gods are stirring the pot now. What was what was the crime that we always remember from Oedipus? He's he 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 he, he fucked his mom. 
That's what we remember. Mm -hmm. I hope I can curse on this show because we are talking about Oedipus. (laughs) So Oedipus, now what do we know about Tony? That Tony's relationship with women is entirely defined by his dysfunctional relationship with his mother. Something that Melfi brings up repeatedly on the show, and which is disgusting and horrifying to Tony, even though you can tell by his expression that he's worried that maybe she's on to something. And then you mentioned earlier, uh, you know, Nancy Marchand dies. And, uh, you know, it was a shock to the show because it was so much a show about a gangster's relationship with his mother, but it continued to be about the gangster's relationship with his mother even after her death. And the first major relationship he has outside of his marriage is with Gloria Trillo, who it appears at the in the halfway point of the same season where Livia dies. And by the end of this thing, she's become this demanding uh, stalker who is menacing Carmela and who is re- wants to be a part of Tony's life and won't take no for an answer. And he has to send Patsy Parisi to make her, you know, stop, but only before he has almost killed her in the same way that he almost killed his mother in the hospital by yeah. asphyxiating her in the hospital. He's going to do it with a pillow and on the floor of Gloria's, you know, weirdly Baba Yaga like cabin in the woods, he does it with his bare hands. This is a guy who asphyxiates people. That's what he does. And that's how he does in Christopher Moltisanti, Dickie's only son. So this is a story of, of you know, a, a motherfucker who begets another motherfucker. <laughs> <laughs> this is the story of Beautifully Dickie, said. Beautifully Dickie said. giving Dickie, motherfuckers all the way down. <laughs> it is from start to finish. To start to finish. You can't get away from them. They're everywhere. The movie even calls it out, which is hilarious, too. It's it like, is. Okay, we get it. We get it. You're Freudian. It's, it's it amazing. Is, it is. Well, there was. Yeah, I mean, it is. And, and, and uh, you know, and but it, it goes beyond that. I mean, this thing is a hall of mirrors. Uh, 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 like, like, you know, uh, what I kept thinking of was of all things, the shining where it's revealed that at the end that, that, uh, you know, Jack Nicholson's character was always the caretaker of the hotel overlook. I mean, Dickie, you know, Dickie goes to therapy with Ray Liotta's character's twin brother, Sally. Those, those, mm-hmm. those scenes serve the same function with Dickie yes. as the scenes with Melfi do with Tony. And Absolutely. the same thing happens in both instances, which is, the the therapist slash confessor character keeps trying to steer the patient to uh, uh, some kind of a realization that yeah. will force them to affect yeah. change in their life, and that person can never really grasp, can never really accept the truth mm-hmm. of their predicament, and they suffer as a result, and and things only get worse. You, and, you know, and, I I got almost like an ethereal sense from those scenes too. Like I almost. I think we have enough evidence that 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 those things actually took place, you know, or is is a thing. But it also seems like it could be a figment of his imagination and him dealing with the guilt of killing his father. Well, it's funny he's talking to his father. You know, it's it's funny you should say that because you know, and this is another instance where, you know, the 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 uh, historical multi generational hall of mirrors continues (laughs) in the production of The Sopranos itself. You remember that in season two, at the beginning of season two. Tony Soprano is is taking care of unfinished business from season one, and he orders the execution of uh, uh, Patsy Parisi's brother, uh, played by Dan Grimaldi. And uh, it turns out that he has a twin brother. Patsy is the twin. I can't remember the name of the uh, original guy. Philly. That's right. Philly Parisi gets whacked. He has a twin brother named Patsy who continues to work for Tony. So Tony ordered the killing of one of two twins. Mm-hmm. Just mm-hmm. like Dickie 
killed one of two twins a generation earlier. Yeah. I mean, and, it uh, just it just goes on and on here. And, mm-hmm. and Alessandro Nivola, it's interesting you mentioned, you know, did these re- these scenes really happen? Alessandro Nivola never quite answered my question, but I asked him that because he <laughs> said he said uh, whether or not these scenes with Uncle Sally are real. And I said, do you think they're real? And he wouldn't answer the question, but he instead said it was like uh, something out of Shakespeare, particularly Hamlet. And he said, the first scene where I go to that prison and I see this guy and I haven't mm-hmm. seen him since I'm five. And he, his face is the face of my father who I just yeah. killed. I, this look of astonishment comes and fear comes over Dickie. And he said, it, for me as an actor, it just reminds me of like Hamlet seeing his father's ghost. Yeah, yeah. totally. I, I do think that Ray Liotta did an uh, excellent job kind of bringing two separate sets of sensibilities to those characters. Uh, I read in, in uh, Profile that uh, he lost like 30 pounds between the roles. Is that, you can tell. Interesting. Yeah. Is that right? That, but basically like he did all the Hollywood dick scenes and then he like lost a bunch of weight and then did the other stuff. And he was originally apprehensive about playing two characters, but then he discovered that the one in jail, uh, you know, was into jazz and Buddhism. And he's like, okay, I think I can make these roles different enough. <laughs> um, which I thought was, you know, and, and I thought it really worked. I thought he was great in both roles. Amazing. Um, yeah. So it's a really amazing, like double performance. Well, um, I should, I, I wanted to say just parenthetically that, you know, occasionally I'll get into discussions with people online about whether or not somebody meant to do something, you know, that if something like that, I think there's a perception that unless a film or a television show was, conceived and executed down to the letter in accordance mm-hmm. with whatever the script was that somehow uh, you can't count it as being intentional. I don't believe that at all. I think the universe has its own plans for us and that includes the art that we make. And the thing about the two twins, I think plays into that for me. Um, David Chase told me and Alan when we were writing the book that the reason that he gave uh, uh, Philly Parisi a twin brother named Patsy is because right after he killed Dan Grimaldi, he had remorse and thought, what did I, why did I do that? He's one of the best actors in the ensemble. I could have done so much more with that guy. And so he's like, all right, let's give him a twin brother. Likewise, <laughs> likewise, during the shooting, during the shooting of many saints of Newark, uh, there was originally another actor. I don't know who it was, who was supposed to play uncle Sally. And apparently he wanted too much money. And they're like, we're about to start shooting. I don't know what to do. And they went to Leota and they're like, do you want to play the other guy? We'll just make him his twin brother. And he's like, sure. <laughs> <laughs> wow. and, and Alan and I were discussing this and, and Alan had a great phrase, which is, um, what was it out of, co- what was it? Oh God. It was out of coincidence comes, uh, an, yeah. an echo. I think out of coincidence mm. comes echoes or something like that. Mm. Yeah. Um, but, but they, I really could have saved so much true. money by just casting Leota as everybody. Well, you know, I, you know, like Tom Hanks in the Polar Express. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Jim Carrey in Christmas Carol. Yeah. Um, so uh, I do also want to mention you guys, I think both called out or all three of you maybe called out like the, the theme song coming. Jeff, Jeff Kanata texted me. He was like, when the theme song comes on at the end, it's man, happening. Dude. Bam. Dude. Yeah. And uh, can I just say, I'm really curious, you know, Matt, what you think of this, but also, you know, Jeff, open to hearing what you think of this as well, but like, and end of it, but like the, the theme song, I'm like, so Mm -hmm. ambivalent about it now, because, because first of all, it is one of the most badass opening songs of all time, according to its sound, but the song itself is about an abused woman who 
gets a gun, and then I think in real life, the the Sarah Thornton murder case, like she shot her abuser and killed him. And so, uh, according to the uh, one of the people in the original band, the Alabama Three, he said, "quote It's quite ironic that it's become a New Jersey gangster album." End quote. And I'm very curious, like, like if, if you have any opinion on the theme song and its appropriateness, and like, kind of as a way of bridging this movie with the the original show. Like, what were your thoughts when that song came on? I was a little surprised. I was a little surprised uh, because I thought. It seemed like I wondered if maybe uh, HBO made them do that. <laughs> it was, it, to yeah. me, it was to me it was the most obvious touch in a film that otherwise generally tried to avoid being too obvious. Yeah, um, I, I think the, the there's some and fans yet, are, and yet yeah, I can't ahead. deny I can't deny that it worked. Yeah, yeah. they oh, they, yeah. they knew Did what they ever. were doing. Yeah, I gotta say, I was just like, it, it does something to you, man. Like, <laughs> it, despite you know what it's and, saying, what the actual message of the song is, I'm like, the way I it comes something. on too yeah. is the, the that baseline hits yes. first, mm-hmm. that boom, 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 and it's like it's building and it comes from <laughs> behind you. You know, it's like, yeah. I, I mean, I I was it's fortunate crazy. that I watched this in a really great sound system, and it yeah. like. It built yeah. from behind yeah. me yeah. and then it came around and enveloped me. And then it's yeah. like, you know, it's like, it's like, it, and then, <laughs> you know, I'm still, I'm telling you guys, it, it, it is very, um, mm-hmm. it was very formative for me. I was just out of college when the Sopranos hit, I'd moved to LA. I wanted to be an actor. Like the Sopranos was, I'm an Italian American. It was like everything for me. And I still, when I hear the, um, the HBO static, intro mm-hmm. thing that that's what i, I always think i always I think the sopranos, the theme. sopranos to yeah. start like that's yeah. the next yes. track in that album is, is that what comes on yeah and so i still hear that and so when that like came out of nowhere right in that moment i was just like yeah it was, it was speaking, incredible speaking of echoes it felt like an echo from the future to be honest, right. like it felt like the timelines yeah. converging a bit. Yeah. It was just like, oh, just give me a goddamn limited series. I know what you're trying to do. You <laughs> son of a bitch, I'm in. Like, that's all. Yeah. I, I well, just want you to know, this is 300% more imitation of TV sounds than we usually get on a, episode, a normal episode of the film cast. <laughs> it's never zero. It's never it's zero. zero. Yeah. Yeah. It's never zero. So you're, you're, you're getting a real, a real treat today, Matt. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, <laughs> you know, one of the things that I'm like, that kind of... Uh, I agree with you, Matt, that you wouldn't necessarily know that a lot of the fan servicey things were fan servicey unless you had seen the show, right? Like they're not yeah. at, that obvious, but there are so many of them that I did find it to be a distraction as someone yeah. who's a fan of the yeah. show. Is it a uh, reveal that Silvio <laughs> didn't have hair? It is. I, yes. I think it's it's always been speculated, but never confirmed. Well, okay. Right? So here's yeah. the thing. I've got <laughs> I've got a piece running. I've got a piece running tomorrow about like seven things I'm obsessed with <laughs> in relation to Many Saints of Newark and The Sopranos, like the relationship between the two of them. And one of them is Silvio's rug. And I got to say, <laughs> uh, I asked David about this uh, when I interviewed him in Santa Monica for the profile I did for New York Magazine. Uh, we t- we spent a good deal of time talking about Sil- Silvio Stupe, and he said uh, J- John Magaro. Uh, uh, ha- that was his idea. He came. Did anybody ask said, Stevie Van Zandt about it? <laughs> I mean, I don't know. I mean, I uh, I would hope that he was okay with it, but, <laughs> well, so but you know, I mean, it's like he's he's. Uh, it's funny. Uh, it's obvious that it's a toupee. I mean, they, you know, uh, Van Zandt. 
lost the ability to grow hair on certain parts of his skull because of a car wreck when he was young, and, oh. and he's worn that's why he's worn those head scarves ever since. I didn't know uh, that. But but huh. the hair was never addressed. And I asked David. I said, "Did you ever answer the question of whether or not that was a toupee?" And he said, "No, I'm pretty sure we never addressed it." And I said, "So we were <laughs> supposed to accept it as a toupee, as his real hair?" And he said, "I guess so, but we never talked about it." And and in interviews, whenever anybody asked Steve about it, he would just say he would just refuse to answer the question. And, and it was almost like they were treating it as like the way they treated the question of what happened to the Russian on Pine Baron. You know, it's like, it doesn't matter. We're not answering the question. It's the mystery important. is better. The mystery yeah. is better. Little, exactly. Live, it's live, it's live, always what, better. What do they say, what do they say in uh, uh, the... Uh, uh, serious man? A serious man, yeah. Except, except the mystery. The mystery. Except, except the yeah. mystery, right. Yeah, yeah. Right, so except the mystery of the toupee and uh, uh, of the hair. It's uh, amazing. But, like, so many of these tidbits, by the way, like... I think one thing, which uh, I don't know, it's a thing I got. <laughs> junior, junior breaks his back, yeah, and yeah. he can't have sex anymore in a traditional way. And that's like, how did he get so good at cunilingus? Right? <laughs> how did this happen? Well, there's a lot of and psychiatry got us here. Yeah, there's a lot of there's a lot of there's a lot of origin stories happening in this movie, mm-hmm. and not necessarily the ones that we expected to see. <laughs> Um, but that's, yeah, that's very true. But I mean, but returning to the dupee for a second, I just got to tell you, I said, David, do you realize that there's scenes on the show? Silvio never takes that toupee off. Mm-hmm. He's in bed with his wife reading, reading a, the newspaper or something. And he's got the toupee on. And then in season six, he gets shot and he's in a coma and Tony comes to visit him and he's got the toupee on. And David <laughs> yes. by this point is laughing his ass off at this. And he's like, Oh my God, we never considered that. And I said, I said, well, whether you considered it or not, you've taken one of the weirdest characters on the show, which is really saying something. And you've made it even weirder. <laughs> I he, love got, it. He, he got well, very, Sure. good ear hair plugs by then like if you guys look at uh elon musk uh elon musk in the 90s versus now okay right you, you can yeah. you could get some good hair plugs the, the hair technology enough. advanced quite a bit since that time completely i think what was also weird uh is like the age difference between tony soprano and sylvia like in the sopranos they seem like they're contemporaries but he seems like he's like more than 10 years older than him in this well, movie. well steven yeah. van zandt is 70 yeah, yeah. No, mm-hmm. I, I think the age difference is represented by the actors, right? Yeah. I, I actually well, asked yeah. I actually asked David about that when I spoke to him recently and I said, you know, the some he wanted to know like how are people reacting to the movie? And I said, I I ran down some of the issues that people had with it and I said <laughs> one of them is there's a discrepancy between the ages, the relative ages of characters on the show versus the movie. And he said, what are they talking about? And I mentioned the Silvio and Tony thing and he said, I don't know what people are talking about. He's like uh, Steve Van Sant, I know, has has been sort of representing it as if they were close to the same age. But right. it's like, look at Steve Van Sant; he's clearly wasn't the same age as James Gandolfini. Mm-hmm. Yeah, fair, yeah. fair points. Know? Fair points. So, so the- uh, you know, uh, but uh, but uh, we, I think we got to address what I think is one of the most significant things about this movie, which is it's narrated not only by a dead man. Yeah. But a dead man with a grievance against the entire Soprano family and mm-hmm. who is notorious for getting basic facts wrong. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Neil I thought that was so cool. I, yeah. I've seen you tweet about voice. this. Yeah. yeah. Sorry. Go, go, ahead. go ahead, Jeff. Go no, ahead. I was just saying, I was just saying when Michael Imperioli's voice started the movie, I was like, Oh wow, that's that's yeah. I think that's super cool. What's a fr- what a framing device, right? Yeah. It was great. Like, it was like I, it was yeah. like it was like you know, wings of desire with mo- with mooks. <laughs> <laughs> I've seen you tweet about this, Matt, as and you have uh, you have speculated that maybe um, this movie is told from 
Christopher Moltisanti's perspective, right? Well, he's it is. I mean, you know, but and remember, he's he's on the other side. You know, the Sopranos, I think, made it pretty clear that there was another side, that there was something beyond what we can see. And, you know, there's all kinds of, you know, possibly supernatural uh, uh, things happening on the show. And and a couple of instances where it's undeniable that what we're seeing is something that is uncanny and inexplicable, like out of a horror film, like when, you know, uh, the medium uh, gives uh, t- uh, gives Polly Walnuts the names of people that he's killed. And that's yeah. information he could never know. Right. And, and, uh, uh, you know, and then, uh, the moment at, uh, Libya's funeral where they open the door and you see big pussy in the reflecting in the mirror on the back of this closet door and, and the reflection is staged in such a way so that no one in the scene is seeing it. That's for us. Right. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I think, uh, I think if we, if we go with that and then we, then we, then we are in the realm of, uh, he can, what can he see? I mean, this opens up a whole bunch of other questions. If he is narrating this from the other side, is he restricted in his knowledge to things that he couldn't, that he could have personally witnessed? I don't think so. I mean, I think, you know, probably he's omniscient in some way, uh, but is he telling us the truth? I don't know. Christopher lied all the time about all sorts of things. And he was kind of an idiot, you know, <laughs> and that's not yeah. to say that nothing in, and, and this is the thing is like, when I bring this up with people, they say, well, if it, if nothing in the if nothing in the movie actually happened, then it was a waste of my time. It's like I don't believe that's the case mm. any more than I believe that you know. Did everything in all four of the Mad Max movies actually happen? All four of them are narrated by different people. Yeah. Well, you know, I think even in this movie, there's this element of the supernatural that kind of hovers around it too. You know, when um, talking about uh, the, um, you know, the uh, the bird that flew in and, and it, did it mm-hmm. presage the, the murder. And oh, there's another thing that just left my head. There's another moment yeah. where they talk about um, something completely supernatural. Oh, what is it? Um, it'll come back to me, but oh, yeah. I, yeah, kids can, uh, are born. Oh yeah. Kids, kids, oh, yeah, kids yeah, yeah, yeah. That's the Christopher yeah, himself. Yeah. yeah the yeah, little baby Christopher scene. like yeah, knows that Tony like knows some weird thing about mm-hmm. and every time Tony wants to touch the baby, it freaks out. Like, that kind of lends <laughs> yeah. credence to what you're talking about that in, you know, in Christopher Moltisanti's recollection of his own infant uh, life, he knew that Tony was going to be his undoing ultimately, mm-hmm. you know, it's, mm-hmm. it's a gangster, you know. a gangster with edible inclinations who kills his father and, and takes his, it takes uh, his father's new bride is his Gumar. Uh, and then, you know, murders her in the surf is the father figure to a gangster who, you know, at some point in the future is going to have a, a romantic life completely ruled by Oedipal fixations and uh, who has a predilection for asphyxiating and strangling people. And and this makes me think about, you know, the movie Cleaver, which is produced by, with a story by, Christopher Moltisanti. And that's right. the story about a gangster from beyond the grave taking revenge on the person who killed him. You know, right. and, yeah. and, oh, and, you know, uh, yeah. And, and this is a story of, uh, I can't say that phrase without thinking of the, uh, the Tom Lehrer song, Oedipus Rex. Do you know it? Mm, no, no. I can't <laughs> say I do. Is, this Tom is Lehrer story, wrote a song? <laughs> this is, this is a story of Oedipus Rex. You might've heard about his odd complex. His name appears in Freud's index because he loved his mother. 
He loved his mother like no other. His father was his sister and his son was his brother. One thing on which you can depend is he sure knew who a boy's best friend is. When he found out what he'd done, he tore his eyes out one by one. A tragic end to a loyal son who loved his mother. <laughs> well done. Thank you. Thank you for that performance, Matt. I appreciate it. Appreciate it. Um, I thought it was important for context. Yes, for sure. For sure. What, this is also the, the second episode in which a song was just like uh, sung out. Recent, that was recently. Jeff last time. Yeah, yeah recently. Yeah, but, yeah. but but you see you see what I'm getting at here. I mean, it's like this endless chain of patterns yes. repeating themselves over time, and and you know by characters who are interlinked not only by blood but by circumstance. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I, I think a couple of big themes that emerge for me are number one, and and on the rewatch right of The Sopranos, which I did recently, one of the things that really struck me is um, how Carmela was unable to escape the mafia. Right. Like, I think that she tried to get divorced and she tried to, like, get out. And then slowly she discovers that she doesn't have the options that she wants to get out and and returns to Tony and, like, kind of reaffirms that, like, this is this is the path that she has available to her and no other. Um, But the other thing that I that I come away with, too, is is the fallibility of memory. There's a scene in there's many scenes in this movie, Many Saints of Newark, that are described in The Sopranos of the Show, mm-hmm. right? A uh, big example that comes to mind is in the episode in season six called Sopranos Home Movies. Um, they describe the scene where Tony's dad takes out a weapon and shoots his mom through the hair, right? Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, and that happens in the movie, but it's slightly different than it happens in the show, uh, than it's described. It's a different set of people in the car than were described right. in the show. And I think to a large degree, the the movie is about the fallibility of memory and how we create these narratives for us. It's about the inescapability of like our way of life, kind of to your point earlier, Matt, about some of the broader themes of this, but also the fallibility of memory, how we remember things in a certain way, but in reality, they were very, very different, right? I think that's, um, that's definitely, I feel like a part of the purpose of the movie. What do you think, mm-hmm. Matt? Well, I think that's I think that's embedded in that you know it is was always a preoccupation with the show. And uh, Alessandro Navola told me that when he asked David Chase uh, for notes on how to play Dickie, uh, and he was particularly interested in like basing some of his choices on things that were discussed on the show, and he said the most important thing you have to know about the show is that they're all a bunch of liars. <laughs> Cool. And I think, you know, it bear, it's worth bearing that in mind. And also yeah. another thing worth bearing in mind is just because a narrator is un- unreliable doesn't mean that everything in the story they tell you didn't happen. Right. Yeah. 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 Well said. Um, so, Matt, I think we're winding down our review here. Uh, but I want to give you a, another opportunity to, to share anything else about the film that, that you want to mention or that you found interesting. Not necessarily that you liked, that you found interesting. very nice uh yeah returning to the melody at the end of the song that's good Um, (laughs) yeah i would say uh you know for me it's really about um david chase being usually in my opinion ahead of his audience and and you know if you could get in a time machine and go back to 2007 Oh God! If only you would find uh, <laughs> almost unanimous 
uh, judgment of what the hell did I just see? That was crap. Right, that right. was garbage. What a lazy yeah. way to end the show. He right. spit in the face of all the fans, blah, 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 blah. And now with certain pockets of resistance that have held out, everybody <laughs> agrees that it was not only uh, uh, one of the greatest endings of all time, but certainly consistent with everything the Sopranos had done before. And then we get to his own first and so far only feature as a director after The Sopranos, Not Fade Away, which is a movie, unfortunately, underseen. I think it's a great film. Hmm. I really do. And I think it's a better film than Boyhood, which is kind of similar in the way that it shows the, uh, uh, you know, its protagonist growing through several years of his adolescence. And uh, the changes keep happening so fast that we it takes us a second to register. You know, it's like he'll he'll walk out of he'll walk out of the house and then he'll walk back in and he's wearing different clothes and he's got a different haircut and he's three inches taller, like that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And that that movie also has a head, what I call a 19, 1970s art house head scratcher ending, where I don't want to describe it to you, but it's very much in the spirit of that cut to black ending in The Sopranos. Mm -hmm. And then we get to Many Saints in Newark and it's the same kind of thing. And there's and and not only the ending uh, where you got like how literally are we supposed to take this? It's a blatantly symbolic image, you know. It's it's like uh, you know is Tony hallucinating this? Uh, did Dickie raise his ghostly hand up out of the out of the coffin or something or what? And I and the answer is no. It's 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 more about a feeling, you know. And and yeah. within the movie yeah. itself, there's all of these other things that happen that may or may not be exactly as they are represented. Like, you know, the, pre the very presence of uncle Sally is probably the most obvious one. And, and I'm now starting to lean towards the idea that he's a, he's a projection that Dickie needs in order to tell himself truths about who he is, even though Absolutely. he can't accept them. Um, yeah. But then again, he may just be his twin brother. I don't know. <laughs> I mean, they, I, I mean, this you know, entire family knows? needs therapy, you know, and it's like, you know, and it's like what, you know, that's, but again, here we are in the land of, you know, uh, what happened to the Russian and did Ralphie Cifaretto set the fire at the stable that killed Piamai? We don't know. Yeah. You know, and, and living in the not knowing is, is, is by and large the point of so much of what David Chase and all the people associated with the show did. And, and a lot of the best shows that kind of came out of the Sopranos either directly or, or because people loved the show also embrace that this idea of like there being multiple self states, multiple points of view on a story and and like memory and narrative being unreliable in some fundamental way and and uh and also just sort of the general disappointing nature of a lot of life like people want it to be like a movie <laughs> and it's not yeah. and like, like that yeah. great line what's that great line from tony where he says in after he's recovering from being shot he says they say every day is a gift but why has it got to be a pair of socks yes <laughs> yes <laughs> Yeah. So anyway, I, I, that's that's my that's but that's kind of my grand sort of summing up of it. I just think I think it's a very honorable extension of the series in a lot of ways, not least of which because it doesn't do the thing that people obviously wanted. Mm -hmm. And it's ironic to me that the thing that it does that I think people did want, which was to see those old characters again. That's the part that everybody agrees that they didn't like is, is the, <laughs> you know, the, the performances of, you know, the younger the characters. I mean, even if you like the performances, yeah, there are some parts of it where it's like, oh, Oh, Silvio's being a jerk to everybody, and and uh, Polly Walnuts is vain, and yeah, you know, and it's like, yeah, but they're supporting characters. If you'd never <laughs> met these characters before, you wouldn't say that it was exaggerated or corny. They're they're in two scenes, you know. So, yeah. <laughs> I'm curious to know what do people think who haven't seen the show. 
Yeah. Yeah. yeah that, uh, all all of us have seen the show, so unfortunately we can't give that perspective. But sorry, Jeff, you were going to say something? I, I was just going to say that uh, I, I think we we should not leave this review without mentioning at least uh, the sort of racial aspect that this film brings in the the racial politics and the the um the, mm-hmm. the look at what was happening in new york at that time i mean it's played against this backdrop of of riots and um mm-hmm. I, I found that to all all that stuff yeah. to be really yeah. interesting i really like leslie odom jr in this yeah. in this movie as well like it also reminded me though that i didn't I didn't quite like the way David Chase always handled race uh, in the show. I'm like, make this a limited series, get yourself like a nice writer's room, you know, to really help with some of these perspectives, because I feel like there's a lot to mine here, certainly with these characters and like that conflict between these rival gangs. Like, that's really interesting. Give us more of that and give us like less of um, people yelling at their wives for the same, like the same arguments all over again I, things like that yeah i personally found the the racial components of this movie to be quite disappointing to be honest with you mm-hmm, and, mm-hmm. and the reason for that is because i've i read like a ton of interviews with david chase um i read matt zoller sites profile of david chase and <laughs> uh before watching this film and like it was framed in the pr as like oh there was a story he wanted to tell about right. these riots right and and why they're important and I didn't really get that sense from the movie. I thought it was a it was an interesting uh, backdrop, and the primary function of the riots, from a plot perspective, is to motivate the character of Harold mm-hmm. to make changes in his life and and drive that character's decisions. Um, but I didn't really feel like it had that much to say about race or racism. Not really. Um, yeah. And so I, I thought it was a missed opportunity personally. But anyway, um, Matt's always side. Curious if you had any thoughts on like the New York riots as being a backdrop of this sh- uh, this movie. Well, I mean, I'm I'm probably the wrong guy to render any kind of substantive verdict on this, but but my feeling was, you know, I did think that they handled uh, uh, race uh, awkwardly sometimes on The Sopranos and very delicately in others. Like uh, like I think you know the whole subplot with the you know the rapper uh, that Bobby ends up sh- you know shooting by his mm-hmm. request was just really stupid. But then you also have a hit as a hit, which is you know from season one where you've got Bokeem Woodbine playing this. Uh, this black, uh, like wannabe record mogul, who uh, is um, very astute in critiquing, you know, the relationship of the Italians and Jewish people represented by Hesh with uh, with African Americans, and in language that was very very rare in 1999 mm. on TV. Like you see it all the time now, but you didn't yeah. see it back then. So I think I, I would say the show has a mixed legacy in that regard. But one thing Agreed. they were always very good yeah. at. One thing they were very good at was making it clear that the that these Italian mobsters do all kinds of crimes and then br- blame them on black people. They do it yeah. time and time yeah. again on the show. And that rings very true. Uh, and I actually thought the movie uh, altogether handled that stuff more intelligently uh, and, and with better historical research than anything on the show. I mean, and I thought the radicalization of Harold was, uh, was interesting because to mm-hmm. me, um, the reason for his radicalization is looking around and realizing that the Newark riots are the biggest thing that ever happened to his people and the Italians that he works for, they were just an interruption in business that lasted two or three days and, mm. and that was used and, and, you know, it's used to co- to them. It's an excuse to cover up a murder, uh, and, and to, and to Harold and the other black characters, it's, it's, you know, the moment when everything changed in Newark and that entire part of New Jersey and, and, uh, uh, yeah, I mean, I guess I agree with you that you could do a whole movie just about that. You could do a whole movie just about, um, yeah. you know, Tony's relationship with his mother. 
But in a movie, you choose what story you want to tell. And he wanted to tell the story of a guy who was talked about but never seen. Right. I do know that he has ideas for other movies that he wants to do. And and I hope like, he gets like a to, limited run, a series well, of films, you would say. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, you know, I hope he gets to bring back some of the same people because one of the ideas that he told me was uh, that this graduate student comes by the Sopranos household and Tony answers the door. This is sometime after, you know, <laughs> the events of the movie. And uh, they're doing a longitudinal study about people who've been in mental hospitals and they want to interview Johnny Boy. And he's like, my dad was never in a mental hospital. And she's like, yeah, mm. he was. And it turns out that one of the many times that they thought he was going to prison, he was actually in a mental hospital. And the, and the idea of the film was mm. something like that he uh, he escaped uh, going to prison for, you know, some horrible charge by pleading insanity. And, and then he has to go get treatment for his psychopathic rage. And he basically has to convince them that he's cured. So it's hmm. almost like a voluntary self clockwork oranging in a way. <laughs> and it's this guy, it's this psychopathic murderer <laughs> trying to convince everybody that he's become a pacifist so that he can get out of prison and do more crimes. That's wow. a story I'd like to see. And there great, are a couple yeah. of others that David told me about that I'm, I'm not going to talk about here because I he didn't give me permission. But he actually has a ton more ideas for Soprano stories. Uh, and uh, he's, ta- he's talking about them. He's, ta- he's actively talking about them because... You know, regardless of where people stand critically on this movie, it's uh, HBO considers it a success. It was all people could talk about this past weekend. I felt like it was more more talked about than Venom, uh, at least among the feeds that I follow. <laughs> mm-hmm. It's a low bar, um, but yes. Yeah, I loved I loved that moment in the movie where, uh, right at the end where you know uh, uh, Livia is talking about the fact that they found that that um, you know depression drug mm-hmm. on Dickie's body. And, uh, you know, she's it obviously meant for her, but she, you know, finds it to yeah. be a sign of weakness for him. I just thought it, it was is kind a... of this like sliding doors moment, right? Like yeah. if if he had been able to, uh, you know, it, like you go all the way back in time, like if his if he wasn't so callous to Junior, Junior wouldn't have killed him. He wouldn't have been murdered with that medication. Right. Maybe he wouldn't have been, would have been able to give the medication to Tony's mom. She might have treated him differently. The Soprano show might never have happened. I actually said something like that to David. I said, you know, David, if 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 Dickie had showed up at Holston's with that medicine in his pocket, you would you wouldn't be a millionaire. <laughs> yeah um but uh you know matt you were talking about uh you, you were kind of contextualizing like how this movie deals with race and i thought that was a a pretty good like interesting take on it um I, I'm, I'm of two minds of there, there's a scene where uh dickie is driving his dead dad in a car next to him and these like <laughs> you know military forces are like oh it's okay like he's white and then yes. they like let him go. They let him go loose. Yeah, even they let though a he guy a with dead, a dead body in this trunk. <laughs> dead body in <laughs> yeah. his, and I'm like, man, that's really not very subtle. But then at the same time, we don't yeah. live in subtle times. It's a hundred percent. I thought it was a hundred percent believable. <laughs> <laughs> fair enough. Fair enough. Um, uh, but, but yeah. yeah, but I, I, I hope that I hope that he does get to more do more of those stories, and I also hope he gets to tell some more of the stories that are not necessarily Soprano stories, like you know that. Yeah, he, another Newark riot story he wanted to tell was a story, it was a satire, and it was about four privileged white boys from the suburbs of Newark who uh, don't want to get drafted to go fight in Vietnam, so they enlist in the National Guard, and they immediately get sent to the Newark riots, and he says, <laughs> and he said, I thought it would be funny to show these four white boys from the suburbs having their first meeting with black people from inside of a tank. Wow. Mm. Yeah. So, you know, there's a lot, there's a lot that can, there's a lot that could still happen. Um, 
Well, we'll see. Uh, we'll see. Yeah, we'll see. Um, at the end of the day, though, you know, it's pretty impressive that David Chase and director Alan Taylor made a film. Yeah, so I think we'll that. wrap this up uh, and get to the end of this episode of the Filmcast. You can find more episodes of this podcast at thefilmcast.com. Email us at slashfilmcast at gmail.com. Our theme song comes from adamwarrock.bandcamp.com. Our spoiler bumper comes from filmmaker and YouTuber Kyle Hillinger. Our weekly plugs music comes from Noah Ross. This episode was edited by Beatty Zhang. Matt Solar Sites is a critic and author of books such as the Wes Anderson Collection, Mad Men Carousel, and The Sopranos Sessions. His forthcoming book, A Lie Agreed Upon, The Deadwood Chronicles, is available for pre-order. Matt Solar Sites, this has been such a pleasure. We really appreciate hearing your expertise. And do you want to let people know, you've mentioned like some Sopranos pieces you're publishing. Can you can you point people to where they can find those this week? Oh, they'll be at Vulture. Uh, there's there's a couple of them going up this week. One of them is a, a, a kind of an expanded look at different connections between the show and the movie. And then there's a profile of Alessandro Navola. So, so those are in the works and I've got some other things coming up as well, but thank you well, for having me. I'm, I'm really, I really enjoyed this and I uh, really enjoyed the talk. You guys are great. It was fun. It was great. It's to have been you. an absolute Truly. pleasure. Um, yeah. So, and we hope to have you again uh, at some point in the future next week on the film cast, we'll be reviewing no time to die. The newest James Bond movie. And again, a reminder that if you are a patron at patreon.com slash film podcast, you will get the review portion of that episode early. So thanks to all of the folks at patreon.com slash film podcast and enjoy the early review, which we've already recorded with Phil Nobile Jr. It's an awesome one. Uh, so uh, look forward to it. Thanks for listening. We'll see you soon.